everybody and welcome to episode 11. I'm David Smith and tonight we put the cult into Horror Cult Films podcast. This show is all about the joy of sects. And we're going to be looking at Rosemary's Baby, Kill List and Apostle. Three very different movies that all deal with different religious organisations. Devotion, paranoia and sacrifice. That's what these films are all about. We've also got an exclusive interview with Seth Breedlove from Small Town Monsters here to talk about his new documentary on the trail of Bigfoot, The Journey. So it's going to be an action-packed show. Joining me to discuss these movies and more are Jim Lamming and our webmistress Steph. Say hi, guys. Hi. But before all that, though, folks, what have you been watching lately? Steph, let's start off with you. Well, towards the end of last year, I think it was, I ordered the box set from Indicator of Fu Manchu. Now, like most of my purchases over the years, they kind of be uh, stay wrapped up in cellophane for about three years before I managed to crack into them. <laughs> because as you well know, we review quite a lot of new films, horror cult films. So anyway, I opened it finally and watched all five movies. So what's interesting about these particular Fu Manchu movies is that five came out within like a five-year period with Christopher Lee and so 65, 66, 67, 68, and then 69. So that was quite a lot of movies being churned out very quickly. I'd never actually seen any Fu Manchu movies and I'd not seen the Christopher Lee ones either. So I didn't really know what to expect, but you know what? I really thoroughly enjoyed them. For the most part, they were entertaining. Just probably only, only one duff one out of the five, really. They were quite tame. I thought they'd be a lot more sinister than they were but they're really quite tame the first three before Jess Franco enters the scene. (laughs) And I'm a Jess Franco fan, and I thought, come on, Jess, bring that sex and death to the proceedings, and he did. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a bit of TNA going on in in the fourth film, but he seems to lose the plot a bit in the fifth. And I think budget restraints definitely were apparent in that because they start reusing some of the footage from previous movies and kind of changing the entire plot of what happened as an opener. And I read somewhere, and actually on a special feature on one of the discs, it, it mentioned that most of the budget was blown on the location. But by the fifth film, I think it was running out of steam and that was the last one. But no, that was quite an entertaining set of movies and... It's funny that the main character was played by three different actors over the course of the five films. So I bought these uh, sidekicks. So it's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Fu Manchu. I am not even slightly familiar with Fu Manchu. (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about right now. So obviously Fu Manchu is, you know, the big bad villain, but he has, obviously our protagonist is a guy called Nayland Smith, who works for Scotland Yard. And he has a sidekick, a bit like Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Uh, Neil and Smith's sidekick is a guy called Dr. Petrie. And he is like, I think he's a pathologist or something. But he's actually played by the same guy throughout. So that was nice that they actually had, well, apart from Christopher Lee, obviously, someone who was kind of there throughout all the movies, um, along with the woman who played Fu Manchu's daughter. So it's, yeah, an entertaining, but not as dark and twisted as I thought it would be. But if you like sort of like the classic horror type thing of maybe what you might see on BBC Two or <laughs> in the daytime on a Sunday. That would probably be passable for the most part, apart from the Jess Franco ones. Jim, are you familiar with Fu Manchu? Uh, no. I've, I've, well, I, I know the character and it's notoriety, but I've not watched any of the films. And uh, anything else you've been watching, Steph? You must have seen a creature feature or two. Do you know what? I've not... 
not recently. Oh. I've been a bit shy with creature features, but don't worry. For next podcast, I'll make sure I've uh, got a few under my belt to share with you guys. <laughs> and Jim, what about yourself? What have you been watching lately? Well, speaking of creature features, don't worry, I've got you on this one, Steph. Pictures are back. So I went to see Godzilla vs. Kong, and that was a great time. Uh, the first maybe half an hour, 45 minutes was a bit by the numbers, getting to know everyone exposition that sort of thing as soon as those two start fighting that's it it just is brilliant but you got the initial meeting where they battle the crap out of each other and for some reason godzilla disappears and then we go on some big journey to the center of the earth sci-fi voyage with king kong and a group of scientists and it was just completely unexpected but also completely brilliant at the same time and then it just goes even crazier from there. I absolutely loved it. I mean, after the last few Western Godzilla movies, I you know, was expecting another lethargic, slow, <laughs> occasionally entertaining film. But yeah, this, this is the best attempt Hollywood have made at a Godzilla film. It was a great time. I believe you also saw Mortal Kombat, right? Oh, yes. That, that was undoubtedly my most anticipated film of this year. And <laughs> it had to be the first film I watched when the cinemas reopened. I felt the exact same way about Saw 9. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't seen that one yet because it's not showing near me for some reason. But, yeah, I'd already watched Mortal Kombat twice prior to the cinemas reopening because I rented it the day it was released over here. And I love it. It's great. It's everything I expected from it, but also good. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, to see it in the cinema on the big screen with that wonderful sound system, just just felt like a much bigger, more complete experience. And I had a great time with it. It was nothing more than you would expect from a Mortal Kombat film. You know, you've got your fan favorite characters etc beating the crap out of each other but we finally got what mortal kombat films should have had from the beginning violence gore fatalities all of that it's there and it's beautiful how did you find it being back in this cinema because i i was seeing the last episode i find it quite an emotional experience being back in there you know seeing like little clusters of people and all being part of this big communal experience, a big Mm. booming sound system, seeing the huge screen, watching all the trailers and stuff, and it was just like, ah, return to normality. Yeah, when we went to see Mortal Kombat, there was a family sat in the row in front of us. In fact, I think the entire row was taken up by this one family, and they were having the best time. One of them was absolutely howling all the way through, even maybe when it wasn't... (laughs) It would be funny, but that just kind of fed the energy in the room and everyone was just having such a great time. It was the day the cinema had opened, everyone was psyched and yeah, it just felt like such a great experience. And I also went earlier this week to see the Demon Slayer movie, it's a Japanese anime. Um, I mean, it really shouldn't have been anything more than a few episodes stuck together but again that was packed uh, obviously we're still social distancing so there was a few empty seats here and there but i don't think you could have got anyone else in that room and it, again you just felt something in the air you know it's it, it was a great experience and something that you can't replicate at home that's for sure 
I mean, something I will say about cinema, I'm probably quite a difficult person to go to cinema with because I'm sometimes a shoosher if people are talking. <laughs> you know, I'll be doing the... Much to the humiliation of people that I go to cinema with. The worst example of that was watching A Quiet Place, the one horror film that you don't fucking talk <laughs> during. There's people sitting there whispering at the back, you know, exchanging drinks yeah. and stuff. I was like, ugh. And... Uh, I remember the weirdest film people started laughing at. I was watching The Iron Lady. And spoiler <laughs> alert for The Iron Lady. I'm sure anyone who watches it will know that uh, Margaret Thatcher outlived Dennis Thatcher. However, the film presents this as a twist when she realises that Dennis Thatcher is dead. It's as if like it's saying, oh, her dementia is actually... Which seems to come in just before she introduces a poll tax, which is dubious. Um, but then it seems to leave once she accepts the death of her husband. Now, as she looks at Dennis Thatcher and realizes that he's not there, these two teenagers at the front, I don't know what, what film they thought they were watching, maybe a sequel to Iron Man, but um, they're <laughs> watching this and just start cackling with laughter. Now, <laughs> anyway, Steph, have you been back to cinema, by the way? I've not, no, but I was keen to hear, like I say, um, how you guys went on and like how many people were sort of in the in the auditorium or whatever it's called, you know. So it seems like it was packed out from from what you're telling me. I think we use roughly a third capacity, don't they? Because it's like if uh, like one of the screens is 120, but they were capped at 40 tickets they could sell. Um, so like you've got like two seats. F- uh, but you can't sell on, on either side of anybody. Right. But yeah, yeah. it's still quite a sizable audience. It's certainly a far bigger group of people than I've been in a room with for 15 months. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, on Wednesday nights, it was busy and it was quite unnerving, to be fair. Uh, you know, I, I kept my mask on the whole time just because... Uh, yeah, the realization did hit me. I haven't been around this many people for a while, and yeah, is it safe to do so? But it was fine. Yeah, like uh, it's the same where I am. Luckily, it's uh, an Odeon Lux where I go, so you've got the big armchairs anyway. So even without the seat next to you being uh, you know cancelled out for anyone else booking it, you've still got plenty of room. So it's it's quite comfortable anyway. Just. Yeah, being in that big auditorium with a lot of people, uh, I did look around for a moment and <laughs> it was a bit overwhelming, I think. I suppose it's going to take a while to get used to, isn't it? Because obviously yeah. we've all been social distancing for so long and I suppose it's going to be a bit of a shock for for people like who are just, you know, for, for putting them situations now where we're actually getting more and more surrounded by people. But I think a bit of time and it'll just be like nothing ever happened, you know. Something we have been discussing a bit in horror cult films, Towers, is the purchase of MGM that's happened by Amazon. Now, with MGM, of course, owning James Bond and other large properties, it makes me wonder about the sustainability of a big screen. I like to think there'll always be a place for it. You know, I like to think that there is part of the experience that people will hang on to. That being said... I'm uncomfortable with what this is going to do for Amazon's streaming website. You know, will we see a future where movies come out on streaming around about the same time as they come out of the cinema? I think uh, The Conjuring 3, I believe, 
is going to be coming out to streaming in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, this is just in theory, this is just something for this year. But I'm wondering if this is also going to be a sea change in the way that films are consumed. I'm also deeply uncomfortable with Amazon being the one that purchased them, just largely on the grounds that MGM is worth only 1% of what Amazon is worth, which is just showing just a bloody big Amazon are furthering a monopoly here. It's something about a company that size, which also has its staff members pissing in bottles in warehouses. So, you know, um, I, you know I, I hope this doesn't significantly change the way that uh, cinema works. I hope it doesn't significantly change the sorts of films that we're able to see. However, something that does please me is a thought of Amazon now on Killer Clowns from Out of Space. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, there's nothing to say that it's just going to carry on as usual. You know, there's, there's nothing to say that the films released out of MGM in future aren't going to be released at the cinema prior to them coming out on mm. uh, Prime or whatever. Because I know some Netflix-funded movies do get, even if it's a limited run, do get a theatrical release as well. Um, unfortunately, it's not the case with all of them, as it would have been great to see films like um, Annihilation at the cinema. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's not all doom and gloom. And I, as you were saying about the gap between theatrical and home releases is narrowing. Hopefully, it's just because we're still in the stages of a worldwide pandemic. I mean, it's hopefully more of an accessibility thing for while people still may be stuck at home rather than you know there being a change in the way that films are delivered to it. I am wondering actually is if this maybe impacts upon home releases because what we might see is rather than Blu-rays and DVDs coming out it might be exclusive streaming for Amazon. Mm, that that was what was going through in my mind because um, I suppose you know back in the day you know a film used to come out at the cinema and then it might be six months by the time it used to come out on like DVD or Blu-ray. <laughs> now that that time between the cinema run, you know, as soon as it's, the cinema runs ended, it would probably arrive on Amazon Prime probably. I think when I was having a look at, at this like press release, what was going out, you know, um, Barbara Broccoli, so that's the producers behind the James Bond series, said to fans, don't worry, you know, James Bond is coming out theatrically. So I don't think it will affect the likes of the James Bond franchise and maybe some of the other ones but if you think about all the back catalogue mm. including the bonds obviously you know I'll, i'm sure all that will be going on amazon um but what was interesting as well from the article i was reading they talk about the actual rights they have over intellectual properties and it said about reimagining them so that's going to open up potentially remakes or series maybe you know based on the intellectual mm. properties that they they now own for mgm so I don't think Amazon is going to probably scupper any theatrical releases for the really big IPs that are, you know, are worth seeing, like James Bond. But I'm certainly be interested in how this pans out. But then again, if it wasn't Amazon who, you know, who were going to purchase it, who who might it have been? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because you know, you go, well, we've got these monopolies of. If it's not Amazon, it'd be Disney. If it's not <laughs> Disney, even it'd probably be Apple. You know, I mean, mm. Apple are growing their media game right now, largely thanks to. Uh, to Prince Harry, so I think with, uh, so. I think you know we'll see Apple becoming a larger competitors in this uh, industry in the next few years. Uh, 
On a cheerier note, things I've been watching lately, you guys are going to be proud as fuck of me because I watched an action film and I really enjoyed it. I was watching Demolition Man for the first time. Nice. It was so good. So a really smart, really funny satire. You know, at the time it would have been a critique of Christian Christian conservatism, but if you change a few details, it could also be modern liberalism, the idea of kind of censorship and conformity. I had no idea just how good Wesley Snipes was as an actor. Like, the guy is absolutely hilarious in this film. You never buy for a moment that he can physically best Sylvester Stallone. But it's a Batman Joker thing. He can out-crazy him. And that's why you got to be worried about this guy. Like, it was just such a great premise of an action film set in a world where action films can't exist. And they mm-hmm. essentially bring back this relic genre from the past as embodied by these two kind of cartoon characters. And it was just, it was just brilliant. Like, I, I, I absolutely loved it. You guys seen Demolition Man? No, I've not. I've, it's, it's been like on my radar along with a lot of others. Anything like Sylvester Stallone or Arnie and things like that. There's a bunch I've not seen that I need to because, you know, I, I enjoy watching their movies. I think Demolition Man's probably one of my favourite action films. I, as, as you've said, it's it, it covers a lot of ground depending on what area you're watching it in, really. Mm. And you know, every time I watch it, I look at it and think, "Wow, this was made in 1993." <laughs> like everything from the story, the jokes, the special effects, just seemed way ahead of its time. It was incredible, and the fact that it was a Sylvester Stallone action film as well. You know, he was known for a lot of drivel around that time. Like, mm. I think he, he was pretty much in decline from Rambo 3 onwards, wasn't he? And then to, to be in something like that is just amazing. Uh, yeah, every time it's on telly or whatever, I will watch it because it is such a great film. As other things I saw, I watched The Conjuring 3. The Conjuring 3 is like a greatest hits package by a band that you quite like, but some of the biggest singles are missing. You see... It does the hits well. You've got your kids in peril. It does those bits well. It does those heart-to-heart moments of the Warrens very well. You know, Patrick Wilson, Vera Farmer, is watchable as ever. The main thing that it's got missing from it is a memorable villain. Now, from the trailer, I sort of assumed it was going to be focusing upon this uh, court case. You know, this kid, Arnie, who, uh, who killed his landlord. And... Perhaps because it's trying to do some fidelity to the truth where the Warrens had almost nothing to do with the case, like them saying, oh, he's possessed by the devil, it was dismissed very quickly. So that becomes like the B-plot in this film. And it just ends up being this kind of rural set mystery that maybe resembles a Ring sequel more than it does a a proper Conjuring sequel, really. But it was strange that for a, a series that's perhaps best known for its villains, you know, you've got like the nun, obviously Annabelle, the Crooked Man, they've got a really good rogues gallery. And yet this one is just a very generic source of evil that we have. It really, it just really was the worst entry in the, in the Conjuring ones out of one, two and three. It's a better film overall than the nun was. And it's probably, uh, yeah, it's, str- it's a stronger film than the first Annabelle as well. But, I don't know, eight, eight films in, the series is beginning to look a little bit long in the tooth for me. And then I watched On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Journey. This did not make a believer out of me, right? I went into it as a sceptic of Bigfoot, I left it as a sceptic 
of Bigfoot. However, it does its job because as a documentary, it's really entertaining. It's really beautiful to look at and has some of the best scenery in the entire world. It also gives you a good glimpse into the subcultures surrounding Bigfoot. There's a good human element to this documentary about monsters. By the way, did I mention to you guys, I interview the director, Seth Breedlove. Would you like to hear that interview? Absolutely. Yeah. Hello again, everybody. I'm delighted to be joined here by Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters. He's on the line all the way from America to talk to us about On the Trail of Bigfoot, the journey. Seth, firstly, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. So it seems like you've had a pretty productive lockdown then, all things considered. Um, yeah, I think in, in terms of the... Uh probably the last 18 months, maybe, maybe even less, maybe like the last 14 months. It's our busiest production time. I think we've ever had just since the beginning of this year, we've already shot four different films. Um, and we're doing an ongoing series where we look into hauntings around America. So we've been shooting those once a month. So, um, yeah, we, we don't stop. So it's been pretty crazy. (laughs) And uh, this, this venture, Small Town Monsters, how long have Small Town Monsters been around for? Uh, we started in, I mean, I guess if you go back to the beginning when we first shot an STM production, it would be 2014. We shot, um, we started filming our first movie, which is called Nerve and Monster. But at that point, STM was going to be like this fun little side project i mean i had a full-time job as a medical biller at the time and i was working freelance newspaper reporting um we shot a a documentary called minerva monster with the intent of having it be a um like a youtube like a youtube short and uh assumed that you know five people would see it and then it it um it gained kind of a following here in ohio where i live uh, it had a lot of media coverage locally, and then it kind of blew up, and, and the STM followed suit. And by 2017, this was my full, full-time job. Well, it sounds like in America, certainly, there's a, like, a lot of people love folklore. You know, you speak to any American that you know, everyone comes from an area that had change and the weird. What kind of local legends did you grow up with? Um, well, I mean, it was Minerva. Minerva Monster was the one that was closest to me as a kid. Um, and I grew up hearing about the Minerva Monster. It was this Bigfoot-like creature that supposedly lived on a hill behind this family's house and threw rocks at their house and terrorized them over the course of one summer. And that was kind of like the, the story, you know, as a kid in my neighborhood, the kids would tell each other, don't go after, don't go out after dark or the Minerva monster will get you. And that was mm. like, like a pretty common thing you would say to one another. I mean, we had uh, every town has numerous ghost stories. And so we, we had a bunch of those here locally, but none that stood out, but the only monster story locally that stood out was Minerva monster. And, and still today, I don't know that there's that many down in the area where I grew up that, that, stood apart other than that particular story. Now, you guys have been around quite a bit, because I saw that you've looked uh, for the Mothman before, mm-hmm. the Boggy Creek Monster, 
and Champ, for anyone that has not heard of Champ or Champy, it's a lake monster said to live in Lake Champlain. Yeah. What sort of what sorts of stories really resonate with you guys? You know, what makes you think, yes, that's what we're that's what we're making our next film about? Yeah, I think it, it's the the human element um, of of the stories themselves more so than the monsters. Because I mean, I I do this full time, so I spend large amounts of my life uh, looking into these stories. And uh, at a certain point, you do become a little bored with the with the monsters, especially if the human element isn't drawing you into the the story. So, um, you know, the, the, the effect that this stuff has on people's lives and the communities where they take place and that kind of thing, that tends to be something that I'm looking for and and getting drawn in by. Um, and then there's stories like Momo where, uh, we just had an idea for how to tell that particular story that would, um, pay homage to the drive-in movies of the seventies that, that a lot of the crew were big fans of. And, um, so, you know, I mean, I guess it runs a little into the creative end too. If we can figure out a fun way to tell a story, any story that, that will be, you know, how we, how we choose the, the production we're going to tackle next, but, but it really comes down to the people. Yes. And this thing about the people, what really stuck out to me about this film was the Bigfoot communities, you know, seeing people bond over this shared kind of belief. There are people with a passion. It's something that I never really thought about. So I take it this is for you what the production company is all about. You know, it's uh, it's a way of speaking to these people in your audience as well as, I suppose, in a way, sort of showing people in the audience, hey, you know, the, you're not alone. You know, there's a large community of people that are interested in this kind of thing. Yeah, I would say this project was, I mean, it's funny because with this one, the people, <laughs> the people that drew us to making this as our next movie are us. So it's like, you know, I knew this was going to be a personal story um, and I was going to kind of tell it from my point of view. Um, I knew that it was going to involve three of my closer friends, you know, my closest friends, uh, especially when it comes to to this kind of subject matter. Uh, and and we wanted to return to a location that was really important to the early days of filmmaking for me, uh, which is that upstate New York area. And um, and it was just a, a looking into not just our our personal attachment to these tales, but also, you know, the local investigators and, and the people that are involved in, in the, uh, the search for Sasquatch. I mean, that stuff seems so silly to people, but, um, you know, I think that, that there's a lot of merit in looking for, for something that most people don't think is real. And I think when I made this movie, that was one of the you know, I guess one of the the mission statements, as it were, when we were making it, was to show the the good side of Bigfootery um, and and the positives far outweigh the negatives. You know, I mean, it, anything that gets people out of their home and into the outdoors is a good thing. And I mean, unless you're running from a nuclear bomb or something, but I mean, any, anything that can can get you out exploring the world around you, I think is a positive. And for a lot of people, that's what Bigfoot does. It gets them out of their home um, and gets them into the woods and, and experiencing the world around us. And I think that's important. And, and especially at a time when, you know, lockdowns and quarantines and, and we're, we're the name of the game um, 
for a lot of a lot of us who were locked away, uh, Bigfoot was what got us, you know, gave us an excuse to get out. Mm. I mean, when it comes to Bigfoot, I'm making this call from Scotland, right? You know, we don't we don't have Bigfoot here, but I'm like both Mulder and Scully in one. Naturally, I'm a bit of a skeptic. Same time, I also want to believe here. Now, I don't want to mischaracterize your position on anything here, but like, have you always kind of been, uh, if not a, necessarily a believer, but open to this sort of story? Yeah, I think I'm actually in the same boat as you. I, um, I've, I, when I got into all of this, I think I was much more open. Uh, maybe not open. I think I was much more of a believer. Um, than I than I became. Uh, what I found was the longer I was involved in this stuff, and the more I looked into things, and the more time I spent in in the outdoors, in locations where people claim to see Bigfoot, and the less activity I actually experienced, the more I felt myself questioning whether or not Bigfoot was real. And so for me. Um, you know, I'm at I'm at about 85, 90 percent that these things are real now. But that's because I've experienced something for myself. But it took me actually experiencing something to to get to to this position. And even then, you know, I still for me, it's I have to see something for me to know that these things are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's been a I mean, it's been a no pun intended. It's been a journey for me to go from where I was when I first got into all this to where I am today. And there was a period of time from like 2016 through 2018, like mid 2018, where I was pretty much convinced there was no Bigfoot at all. So um, it, it took something actually happening to make me think that there was anything to this, but I totally respect and understand the skeptical reaction to Bigfoot. Because, I mean, as someone who thinks they might be out there, I have the same questions that anyone does that, that is totally skeptical about this. And I think a lot of, well, that's probably an exaggeration. I think there, there are a number of Bigfoot investigators and Bigfoot enthusiasts who understand the skeptical reaction and can uh, empathize or sympathize with that response to it. Um, it's that what, as I understand it, once you've, seen it you know then everything changes but even even from what i've experienced um it shifted me pretty pretty far you know from one extreme to the other something that i found fascinating here was about how consistent the stories that have come up are mm-hmm. you know how much these sort of stories have in common which you know, if they take place over a sizable portion of the uh, of, of the country mm-hmm. you know i mean you're looking here uh, at the East Coast, you know, people mostly associate Bigfoot with what the uh, the North the Northwest. Yeah. Um. So in that respect, with the sorts of consistency, this the idea of people using different names for what's essentially the same kind of story, would you say Bigfoot seems relatively clear cut compared to some of the other sorts of stories? <laughs> like, would you like would you say that you usually go into these things around about kind of eighty eighty five percent, or a lot of the time? Are you trying to convince yourself as much as uh, maybe trying to open up the audience to a possibility? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, because I'm definitely not interested in convincing anyone that Bigfoot's real because I don't know myself. Mm-hmm. So so for me, it's it's more about showing people why this topic is so fascinating and why it's worthy of looking into to begin with. So it is like 
it's a little more there's something about Bigfoot that is a little easier for some people to digest or understand than say something like the Mothman or um you know or the really the what you would consider outlandish cryptids and, and paranormal topics. Um obviously I don't think any of it's outlandish. I'm into all of it. But uh Bigfoot the consistency of reports across a massive geographical range, you know, the United States, North America in general, uh, South America even. Um, and, and the fact that those reports and the consistency and the behavior and, and, and what people are physically describing runs across centuries, I think that alone makes it or puts it on a, maybe another level from some of the other paranormal, quote unquote, paranormal topics that are out there. Um, you know, UFOs and Bigfoot are the, to me, the two that are the easiest to, to get a, a total skeptic to at least take a look at. Absolutely. I mean, because I think the thing with Bigfoot here is you go, what's the, you know, what precisely is the claim here? Now, you've got some movies about Bigfoot that will maybe open it up to more fantastical interpretations. But at the end of the day, you know, you could look at this in just in terms of being, as people describe it, it's like a very large bear, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly it seems a lot more realistic within that, or a lot more intuitive within that sort of context. You know, this is a nat- potentially a natural species here. Um, well, yeah, and, and, and when you look at the uh, an area like the Adirondacks, I just returned, you mentioned the Pacific Northwest, and I just returned from uh, the, the Olympic Peninsula, which is the northernmost part of the United States up in Washington. It's like the tip top of, of Washington um, on, the, on the Puget Sound. And out there, you're in another another type of rough territory, right? Like there's no roads through some of those areas. There's no people. Um, and yet the Adirondacks on the East coast, uh, people overlook that, but, but it's a 6 million acre swath of land. Um, and 6 million acres by comparison, the Olympic peninsula doesn't even touch a million. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive part of our country where people, not a lot of people are, and where, you know, I think what we're trying to do is show you that there are there are still places in America that are relatively untouched by human beings. You go into some of those, uh, you know, on the helicopter flight, you get into mm-hmm. some of the, the high peaks wilderness areas and even flying out to the high peaks and the mountains, um, you know, they're so rugged and and untamed that there, that there aren't really trails around some of those mountains there's lakes on those on top of some of those mountains that have never been touched by people um and those are are great places for something to hide out you know if the, if there is a bigfoot where where something could you know hide away and never be found i tell you what those locations are absolutely breathtaking mm-hmm. i was yeah. really impressed if i thought wow it's not an, an area of the world i've ever been to how was the experience of camping out there like, um, were you guys scared when you're in, like, when you're by yourselves, or even when you're with researchers towards the end? No, I don't get. I don't think any of us get scared um, in Bigfoot situations. I've been scared in or uneasy in, you know, some of the haunted, the haunted locations we've gone to. And I'm very skeptical of hauntings, but there's still something genuinely unnerving about some of the haunted locations we've gone to. But um, 
Yeah, I don't think any of us get scared. Um, the weirdest thing, you know, that we encountered in in some of those locations was just the quiet. Um, having spent a good deal of time outdoors, kind of all over the United States, um, there was a stillness to, especially the Buck Mountain area, which is where we camped two nights. Um, there was a stillness there that was really bizarre, like truly weird. Um, and we talked to other people in the group and they camped out there for weeks at a time and had never experienced anything like it. I mean, there was nothing, no wind, no crickets, no, the only thing we had happen was the one night, you know, there was a great horned owl that kind of came in and, and was going off near our camp. But other than that, it was really quiet. So, um, you're hoping that something's going to happen. So when you're out there, you know, I don't think for me anyway, I don't think that, that there's any fear so much as a, uh, uh, a strong desire for something to take place so you can film it. Um, but you also have to be careful about that because you don't want to interpret something that isn't, you know, unusual as being unusual. And if your desire is to be out there and capture something strange, you might, you know, maybe allow your, uh, your, your desire to experience something to run away with you. Yeah. Cause I, I suppose actually when you're talking about, um, to use your excellent word from earlier, big it's not really seen as um, like in the documentary. It's certainly the bigfoots, big feet are certainly never portrayed as anything dangerous. We talk about uh, throwing stones uh, to sort of say, "Hey, keep your distance." And yet, something that makes me wonder about is in the event the bigfoot was found, would you worry about the public response? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of game hunters here. I think that. I think the thing that I've come back to is we've been looking for them for hundreds of years and haven't found any just because we know they exist. If one were to be found, isn't going to mean that all of a sudden it's a lot easier to go find them. You know, like I, th I think if, the, if they exist, they have to be just incredibly, um, incredibly good at staying hidden. And I don't necessarily know that there would be a huge danger from hunting. My, my concern has has become more recently this idea of conservation um and and maybe things like loss of habitat as a danger to them more than more so than you know like people hunting them to extinction or anything like that i don't think that's a danger but it's definitely a, a concern that you know we clear cut so many acres of forest every year um and some of these some of these places you know i think there there's if these things exist, there would be a massive um, impact on their habitat because even even going down to we were filming in the, uh, southern Louisiana back in uh, March, and while we were there, we learned about the the 18 miles of coastline that disappear each year in southern Louisiana, and that's year after year, and and a lot of those areas are places that. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you could read Bigfoot reports from guys like John Green who would take Bigfoot re reports from like all over the, the country and would get reports from Southern Louisiana. Those reports don't come in anymore because there's they're, the, the land is literally under ocean. So um, every year you're going to have you know, different dangers to, to potential habitat if these things exist, whether it's logging or environmental concerns or whatever. I think there's, there's a real you know, uh, danger there. Mm. Uh, when it came to 
the presentation here, I was really interested in the choice of music that you have because there's almost quite a triumphant quality about it when you guys are hunting. I imagine there's the tempt, the easy temptation would be to go into Blair Witch Project mode, you know, shaky camera and uh, mm. and a very naturalistic sound. I mean, this is almost about like the wonder of nature yes. here, right? Rather than making the audience frightened. Yeah, this is my John Woo movie. Um, I said that early on in the making of this, that, that like if this was going to be my John Woo moment and people probably won't get that, but like that kind of like wide eyed, uh, I always felt like Woo was an optimistic kind of cheesy. There was a cheesiness to his work that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't use the word cheesy as a, as a negative. I think it's a positive. Um, and coming out of the pandemic when everything seemed so dark, I I did wasn't interested in making a scary movie at that point. We had just come off making The Mark of the Bell Witch, which is, which is a straight ahead horror movie, and before that we'd done The Mothman Legacy, and both of those were very dark. And um, I wanted this movie to be about wonder and and nature and all the things that that I love about looking for an undocumented primate in the woods. That's not to say there isn't a, a frightening aspect to all of this. You know, if these things exist. And they're actually eight feet tall and, you know, four or five hundred pounds. I'm sure they can rip you to shreds if, if they bump into you. But I don't think that was, you know, it didn't it didn't necessarily suit the tone of the movie we were trying to make. And there is, you know, again, there is a, the, the desire here to impress upon people that this is something worthy of doing with your time. You know, and, and people will spend days sitting in a deer stand you know, with a bow and arrow or a gun waiting to kill a, a deer and not think anything of it. But it's ridiculous, apparently, to go wander around the woods with your friends looking for, for you know, if, if if in some way this proves to be true, probably the greatest find of the 20, 20th, 21st century. Right. Um, and so I think there's I think there's merit here. And I say that over and over again. But that that is definitely you know my choice of music and all that kind of stuff is informed by my desire to have this be a very um a triumphant kind of movie and something where you know like when i watched it we we showed it at the canton palace theater which is this classic like 19 this building was constructed in the 1920s it's one of the last classic movie palaces in the united states and um, we did a, a premiere of the movie there, and it was the first big premiere they had managed to have at the theater since COVID, right? And so mm. they, you know, it's a massive theater. It seats like 1,800 people. Um, and they allowed 300 people in, and and there were a ton of people there. It was like 250 people showed up for the movie. And, you know, like they burst into applause when it ended. And I was thinking about the fact that like for a lot of those people that, in fact, we heard this repeatedly for a lot of those people, that was their first time out at a movie since COVID and to get to go see something where you're transported to another part of the country where maybe you've never been. And you've, you, you have that kind of like adventure, adventurous tone, you know, to, to the film. I think that suits where people are coming from right now. Um, all around the world, obviously, with COVID. COVID didn't just affect us here. It, it affected everyone everywhere. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, I was in the cinema for the first time uh, since last March. Last week, I was watching the new Saw film, and it was really emotional just being back in that place, you know, having that huge screen, that, uh, yeah. that 
huge sound on you and just that communal experience. Now, if people were to follow on from this and to go off to hunt Bigfoot themselves, how best would you suggest people prepare? What should we take with them? And are there particular times that they should, that they be best advised? Uh, yeah, I'm the wrong person to ask that because like I always tell everyone, I, I don't buy into like the you have to hunt Bigfoot after dark thing. Mm. Um, I don't buy into that. I don't buy into the fact that you have to take any specific gear. I mean, when I had what happened to me happened to me, I was asleep in my tent or falling asleep in my tent at 2 a.m. I wasn't out looking for Bigfoot. I was laying in in, in my cot. Um, and I had a vicious migraine. So, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend anyone have a vicious migraine as their gear, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Go out in the woods. Like that's the, that's the best <laughs> thing you can do uh, to try to have an encounter. Put your, my, my friend, Mark Maskey, who's in the movie always says, if all you can do is put yourself in a place where you'll have the best opportunity of potentially having something happen, uh, you know, whether or not something happens, it's, it's a, it's probable nothing ever will, you know, like so, some of the, the forefathers of Bigfoot research looked into this subject for decades and never saw anything for themselves. But then you talk to people who, who have, and they were just out there doing, you know, hiking with their family or sleeping in a tent, you know, like just get out, get out. Like that's, that's the ultimate message of the movie. And I think when it comes to looking for Bigfoot, that's the best thing you can do is just get out in the woods and maybe something happens. Cool. Um, I know I've already taken up more time than we planned, so I've got two quick questions, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, first one, I know you've got other documentaries coming up this year, including a follow-up to this one, I expect, which is The uh, the Discovery, it's called. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, I appreciate that these are a wee while away from their release, so what at the moment can you tell me about these? Uh, yeah, well, we just sent off um, On the Trail of UFOs, Dark Sky, to... 1091 today i would imagine that's going to be out around august is my is my guess on that one and that's a really um you know that that's my x file slash raymond chandler mystery (laughs) mystery uh ufo documentary that looks into ufo sightings around the state of west virginia um super fascinating and and it begins in the mountains somewhere and it ends in a cave. So it's a, it's a strange, <laughs> it's a strange trip, but uh, I think, I think people will really like that one. I'm really excited to get it out there. It's loaded with like really cool um, stylistic recreations, but it's also blended with the um, on the trail of style, which is, you know, a little more uh, scaled down, you know, our films tend to be a little higher budget and we, we put a lot into making those as cinematic as possible. Whereas on the trail of as a series is supposed to be more, about transporting our audience to these locations. Um, so that one's that one's coming out later this year. I'm just not sure when. Our big Halloween time release is called The Howl of the Rougarou. And that's Ooh, the one. Werewolves, isn't it? Yeah. That's the one we were shooting down in uh, Louisiana. So that's set in, in southern Louisiana. Um, super fascinating. A lot of like really creepy uh, supernatural angles to that movie, you know, talking to, to witnesses who woke up in the middle of the night and discovered the river standing at the foot of their bed and, and just really creepy, unnerving kind of stories. Um, and that one will be out, you know, like I said, later, later this year, probably around Halloween. Um, on the trail of Bigfoot, the discovery is the one we shot out in Washington. And, um, you know, just from going through footage and like reviewing dailies, 
I think I said this about about on the trail of Bigfoot, the journey, but this one, just from a, a technical standpoint, this might be the best looking Bigfoot documentary there's ever been, oh, you know, like yeah, on, on the trail of Bigfoot, the journey, it's gorgeous because of the locations themselves. But I mean, it was me and, and the, the guy who is my, probably my director of photography was 17 years old and had only held a camera, you know, eight or nine times before. So our, what we were up against in terms of technical um, obstacles, it was pretty substantial. But on the trail of Bigfoot, the discovery looks like a, you know, it looks like it looks better than something you'd see on Discovery Channel. Mm. Um, really intense uh, locations we went into and some super weird um fascinating sounds that are that have been captured video that's been captured trail camera photos and then the the title the discovery refers very specifically to a discovery that this group has made um and you'll learn about that in in the movie so we're really excited about that one that one probably will be out around december excellent um does a, a big is bigfoot or a big feet being seen abroad at all like yes. um, i mean if, if they are you if they're not just a u.s thing no no, no, it's, no it's, you mentioned yeah, it's it's, uh, you mentioned it was for someone in china actually during the documentary don't you yeah yaren is china um you know uh scotland ireland had their own you know like scotland and ireland had their own um certainly like i think sighting russia russia has a lot of sightings they're they're kind of seen all over the the world um you know i think i think each country and each continent maybe even have their own sort of hairy man you know myths and so to me that's always been a red flag that maybe these things don't exist because it doesn't make a ton of sense um for the same animal to exist everywhere around around the globe so that's actually been a red flag for me uh uh, my skeptical brain but um it's definitely it's definitely something that's spread you know around the around the world in that respect, are you tempted to take this uh, small town monsters abroad, go and sort of go elsewhere? Like, for instance, calling from Scotland, Loch Ness, for example, is always waiting. Yeah, no, I I absolutely want to, um, especially Scotland would be amazing. Uh, it's it's a place I've always wanted to go. Um, I would love to do it. Our problem is still that we are a completely autonomous independent production house, meaning that every single production that we put together is funded by us. And so it's either, you know, like we run a Kickstarter at the beginning of the year and that's how we raise some of the funds, but that money runs out pretty quick. And so our issue has always been what we can manage to pull off on the tiny budgets, you know, that we're working on. Um, Especially, you know, if you look at some of the films we made versus some of the stuff that's on TV, I would put ours head and shoulders above a lot of that stuff. And we're making it at, at basically the cost of their catering budget. But as far as whether or not we want to do it, we 100% want to, to get out of the U S at some point. Excellent. Well, I mean, as, uh, as I'm sure we've all learned from lockdown measures, it's never been more important than ever to support independent and uh, local brands. So absolutely for everyone who's looking for a good Bigfoot documentary, I would strongly recommend this one. Uh, Seth, thank you very much for coming and speaking to us. If I guess actually ask yes, one very last thing, sorry, this probably is the very last thing. Have you got a favorite monster or legend? Um, my favorite monster... Man, I keep talking about it, but 
Um, it's probably the Minerva Monster. Like, it's the one I grew up with, and it's the one here that I, you know, was just so aware of as a kid. I mean, I love the Mothman story, especially that 1966 and 67 wave of sightings that happened in Point Pleasant that ended with the collapse of the Silver Bridge. That's, in terms of a story, that is my favorite paranormal story. Um, it's just got such a concrete beginning, middle, and end, and it's so so fascinating. But yeah, I, I always go back to Minerva. In fact, today I just had someone I know email me a uh, an account from someone that apparently was living on that property in the 90s and was still claiming activity was going on. So yeah, I constantly get sent things relating to that story, and that's the one I, I always find myself going back to. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Cheers. Well, that was Seth Breedlove, and now... We leave the cults of Bigfoot to come on to horror films about cults. We will begin with 1968's Rosemary's Baby. Baby, I intentionally didn't watch this one before, largely because of the association with Roman Polanski. Of course, you can separate the artist from the art that they create. A lot of the best musicians, a lot of the best filmmakers, a lot of the best writers have had terrible personal lives. They've been cats or they've done unspeakably bad things. You know, I'm thinking of... Like William Burroughs killing his wife, for instance. You know, I'm thinking of Lou Reed being a serial domestic abuser. Thinking of uh, Pete Townsend apparently doing research for his book. <laughs> now, unlike Victor Salva, of course, who did Jeepers Creepers, Roman Polanski never did his time. And it's not like this is ambiguous. He confessed to what he did. And he was meant to do his time, but he fled. And then... He was largely helped because of his talent. People defended him because he was a good filmmaker. I'm thinking of the infamous letter signed by everyone from David Lynch to Wes Anderson, Darren Aronofsky and Tilda Swinton. Would they have done that for other child molesters who have less of a sense of mise-en-scene? I somewhat doubt it. And I think that they're complicit in why we didn't see and indeed why we still have not seen justice in this. That being said, Polanski is, of course, not the only person that was involved in this film. It's a crew of literally hundreds, and it is also a horror classic. And you know what? It was a horror classic for a reason. I absolutely loved this film. I think, hands down, this is the best film of the night, and I can. this is very possibly one of the 20 best horror films I can think of. Everything about this was brilliant. The pacing is brilliant, the acting's brilliant, it looks brilliant, the soundtrack is brilliant. 
it was an absolute work of art. And you know what? For everything I just said there, it made me want to see other Roman Polanski films. Yeah, I agree. Age shouldn't be a factor in it, but just from the very opening shot, the big sweeping pan across Central Park and the buildings of New York and so on, I was floored with how good it looked and how well it was shot. And then you're following uh, Rosemary and Guy through the streets, up through the building, just the way everything followed the camera, the movement, everything was just wonderful and fluid and incredible. And I was absolutely hooked from that point on. I've been a fan of Ron Plansky's work for quite a long time. It's not to say that I love everything he's done. Chinatown, I really didn't get. But Rosemary's Baby, I think, was one of the first Ron Plansky films I ever saw. And it's, it's always been one of my firm favourites. Polanski ha- has this ability to unnerve with what he produces on film, like with his horrors, you know, obviously especially. There's just this underlying menace that he manages to convey. And Rosemary's Baby is such a fine example of that. Just from the opening where we've got, you know, the black, all you see is a black background, you don't see anything, and you hear the music come in and of the woman's voice, and that, that alone just... puts me on edge and like Jim was saying you know the shots sweeping shots as you go into the the apartment building that Guy and Rosemary are looking to purchase or rent and just the architecture of everything you know that everything you're looking at there's the sort of character behind it and Mm. you just can't just so much for taking and everything's alive and breathing like everything's its own character and it's just a feast for the eyes and I just absolutely adore it. And I'm glad to hear you've, you both enjoyed it as well. Was that, so was that your first time seeing it as well, Jim? Yeah, yeah, I've never watched it before. Right. Uh, again, I was kind of with uh, David. I mean, had, I have seen Chinatown and is it The Ninth Gate? Oh, yes. Love um, that film. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've seen those. But yeah, like conscientiously, I, I do tend to avoid Polanski films. Um, but uh, going back to what you mentioned about even the architecture having character to it, it's something you notice almost immediately that even though this was from what, 50 odd years ago, the, the, the building itself is, is worn, it's weathered, and you can immediately see there is a history behind that as well. And it's just those little intricate details that really add to what he's already a great looking film and this is just the first couple of minutes to break down the way this really works the main thing this does for me is the sense of paranoia now as an audience we sort of know what's going on before the characters do at least we know there's something weird about the neighbors now the annoying neighbors are played brilliantly. They're exactly mm. the sort of people that you would not want to hang out with. And as Guy, who's the one who's initially not wanting to speak to them, he's like, look, if we speak to these neighbours once, they're going to be in our lives forever. And of course, you know, <laughs> uh, he finds a way to advance his uh, career through them. Like, I was surprised at how far ahead of its time this film felt. You know, the big focus being all about gaslighting. This yeah. woman who's dismissed by everyone. Husband... The neighbours, the neighbours' doctor, all of them telling her everything here is totally normal. And she's isolated as well. You know, you look at her friend Hutch, who can help her and gets killed. Her doctor, Dr. Hill, who they managed to remove as well. Her husband, who should be able to help her, is being compromised. And 
it's a really desperate situation they put her in. You know, you really get into the headspace of the character. It's a wonderful perspective piece. Bits like the uh, the fever dream or the, well, the rape scene that she thinks is a fever dream, for instance. You know, that was outstanding. Mm. Mm. Uh, I said the soundtrack earlier on, you know, that just really puts you in there too. And this way that you just see her physical transformation, you know, her weight loss, her skin going really white. That terrible haircut that I'm referring to as the was it the worst decision she's made in her life or something like that. And all the time in it, Guy is such a prick. Mm. Credit to the actor, you know, he's a total twat, but he's charismatic enough to make it believable that people would like him. You know, he's got a charm to him, but he is awful to her from the get-go. Yeah, he's... That's one thing... You, you immediately take is that he is aggressively arrogant. I don't know, maybe it's a critique on actors, but yeah, there's, occasionally he'll seem like a really nice guy, but for the most part, he just comes across as, well, as we know by the end, that he's self-obsessed here and he only cares about himself, really doesn't. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sold his wife out like he did. The bit where he tells her, oh, by the way, you know, we're going to get lots of money out of this, and then says, you haven't really been hurt. Oh, you know, you just yeah. fucking punch <laughs> Absolutely. Him. I mean, it's such a, such a self-centred guy, and, you know, I think there's a scene in it when um, they go round to the cast of Vets next, mo- next door, and I think Rosemary might be with Minnie in the kitchen, and we just see a shot of the lounge and just some smoke wafting. And obviously that's the moment, you know, when Roman's probably there saying, you know, sell us your wife in, in terms of, you know, let, let her, you know, be yeah. the spawn of Satan and, you know, we'll make your career launch because clearly he's he's an actor, but he's not doing that well. He's, you know, as um, Rosemary keeps telling everybody, well, he's done Luther and nobody loves an albatross and <laughs> and, and TV and some... And some um, overwork but clearly it's not actually he's not made this big break has he until somebody just wakes up one morning and has lost the sight conveniently after they've been round and visited the the elderly neighbors so yeah you know you, you can tell from that that it's starting to go a bit downhill for um mm. for rosemary but she doesn't exactly realize yet and it's nice that she has hutch for help her well, as we can see, Roman Roman and uh, Minnie must have like a, a sixth sense to know that they've got people around who might be able to fill her, uh, whisper things in her ear that said, Luke, you know, this isn't right, Rosemary. You know, even a friend said this isn't right, being in pain all that time. And clearly her husband just doesn't give two shits. All he's bothered about is, is himself, like Jim said, in his career. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how quickly he just would give that up, his wife up for that. I remembered when I was watching it that uh, marital rape only became against the law in 1993, within our lifetimes. And the depiction in this film, you know, where he says, oh, uh, yeah, I raped you in your sleep. You know, he says it was fun in a necrophile kind of way. And mentions, oh, well, I was a little loaded too, you know, as if, can you blame me? I didn't want to miss my opportunity for us to have a kid. And it is really shocking watching this, you know, the kind of disrespect that every character in it has for Rosemary's body. She's a vessel for them. 
that's all she is. And as an audience, you know, we sympathize with her. We don't see her as a vessel, but she's completely objectified by this cult. And and just to make that a little bit worse, like when he was putting her to bed because she was inebriated, like she was still trying to get him to go with her, but he refused. He said, no, we can wait till tomorrow. We've got all the time we need. Mm. And that just made that next morning all that little bit creepier. Especially if she's waking up with scratches all over her as well. Whatever he he did there and you know we well we can assume that what happened was fairly like what we saw in the Mm. sequence. Like a whole lot of people come in and start watching him. It was you know obviously very rough. I thought that bit was really disturbing and very very chilling. That's probably the first hint that that wasn't a dream wasn't it? I mean, it was an amazing sequence, and I think she had one prior to that as well. Oh, with the nuns, yeah. And just the way that all fitted together to for her to appear there, either in a bed or was it on a boat, something like that. Yeah, I was going to say about the boat. Just, <laughs> yeah, just just the way it staged all of that together and it, it, it edited it together. It was just really, really impressive for those sequences so again that was something else I knocked my socks off about this film and I think early on as well you know when they move into that apartment we know that there's something kind of not right because of that that door that's been blocked up yeah Mm. so when they start hearing like some weird chanting next door and and they're wondering what that is you just know that there's going to be some doorway or some opening in their apartment into theirs so when she starts going on that when she's asleep or she's kind of having that clearly it's not a dream it's easier of them to sort of move her from there or or enter the apartment or whatever happened so it's something that we see later on anyway when she goes to dr hill and kind of locks herself in the apartment you know she's not locked them out they've they've always managed to get in they always always hearing the what's going on (laughs) that that was good you you think she's safe she's just managed to stop guy and uh, everyone else coming in she's locked the door and then she's in one of the rooms and you just see two people walk past and it's like fucking hell <laughs> <laughs> but they do that whole sort of you know creeping thing you know when they walk yeah yeah so like when you yeah. tiptoe like <laughs> they could just walk normally and softly they don't need to do the whole action <laughs> with it do they <laughs> one criticism that i make of films quite often is when we have a fairly telegraphed narrative where we are in Act 3 and the characters are still in Act 1 or 2, I used this against Midsummer, for instance. But this film gets around it because there's something so horrific about watching the process itself happen. There's no safety for her. The house is compromised. Her husband does not have her best interest at heart. And this thing, the Antichrist is growing inside her. She is going to have this this baby because she really wants one. And she obviously doesn't know that she's just carrying the Antichrist until the end of the movie. Speaking of which, the end of the movie was really interesting. It's quite bittersweet, you know. Obviously, she's just had this child. She's been completely coerced this entire time. And yet, when she hears the kid calling, when she hears the kid needs her, she goes to its side. It's, uh, a maternal instinct seems to kick in. It's not the way that she wanted to have a kid at all, but she's she's done it. 
and yeah. I thought that was really effective. You know, like it was, it was, it was difficult. You know, it's all right. This is not a happy ending at all on paper, but the character seems to get something from it. Mm. Yeah, you, well, just the way she, uh, I forget the name of uh, the woman. She's rocking the cradle really fast, isn't she? And you can see mm. her getting defensive about that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's really ambiguous. <laughs> it was. A good ending. I, I, I thought she was probably going to go on a bit of a stabby spree for that last part. <laughs> mm, I thought that <laughs> but, first time uh, I watched it. Uh, yeah, it was much more subdued and yeah, really interesting a way to leave it. They couldn't have given it another ending. Like, don't be wrong, the stabby thing would be very cathartic for the audience. Mm. <laughs> Something the film does really well is it sells this idea of helplessness. You know, like, while she goes through a character journey of not being as meek as she is at the beginning of the film. If she does start to become more independent, she does investigate this. But at the same time, she can't compete with these guys. I mean, the cult have, just like what we'll see in Kill List, the cult have doctors, you know? The cult are well-connected. And there's no way that she survives a situation where she turns against them. I thought they sold the situation really well. Like, the build-up, the escalation was spot-on. You know, it's really good good character dynamics at the core of the movie that push this forward. And some of the coercion is really difficult to watch. You know, like, the way her husband's like, hey, it'd be rude not to wear that dead girl's necklace. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I was so surprised that Tracy died that early on in the film. There was something slightly stepfordy about her, but I just I didn't I didn't think that she would die. Obviously, it gives the neighbors a way in here because they're able to guilt trip him by going, ah, oh, you know, she's like a daughter to us. Come round for dinner. <laughs> I, I, did you guys expect that? Well, everything seemed premeditated from the start. Clearly, there was something up with the apartment from where that uh, cabinet was blocking the door, so the neighbor was obviously onto them. Um, and I can only assume that it was the cast of Etz or someone in their circle that killed the neighbour so to get them to move in. I mean, that, that, that's what I picked up from it. And everything that happened mm. along the way. Yeah, there was a couple of times where Rosemary went off on her own, did her own thing. Mm. But literally everything was being manipulated by the group. What's interesting is, though, is that the Castavets actually, I think, genuinely cared about Rosemary, despite obviously wanting her to birth the, the devil's spawn. Yeah. But they actually cared, unlike her, her own husband, you know, by the end of it, that marriage yeah. is completely over. But as you can see with Roman, um, or Stephen, <laughs> whichever you want to call him now, um, you know, he said, no, let Rosemary be the mother. You know, they, they held her in sort of like a high esteem and actually cared about her. Her husband, you know, he, he was easy to buy just for, to, to get the access to Rosemary. But as much as obviously they're the wicked for what they did, throughout they didn't try to harm her. They weren't like, right, she's given birth now, let's kill her off. It was kind of like, face of facts, you know, we'll embrace you and all this. So, is that, I mean, what I mean is, it's not, it's not straightforward at all, is it? Yeah, and something that's really interesting about that is the way that Guy in it, when she comes in at the end, he can't even be in the same room there. It's a sort of reflection of, yeah, I fucked up. Yeah. You know? 
Because the thing is, to to Minnie and Roman, I, yeah, I mean, they don't really respect her autonomy, but at the same time, you know, for them, I, I don't think it's necessarily of love for her as much as the Antichrist. You know, they're like, well, we, she's going to raise this child. You know, she's a part of all this. She's got a role within our particular plans. She needs to stay alive so she can she she can nurse this little this little bastard. You know. <laughs> Oh, by the way, I must mention, they were the smartest dressers in that no, movie. That scene where we first see them, obviously, it's <laughs> tragic. But seeing them walk on the screen, I was in awe of those outfits. They were incredible. Oh, absolutely. His <laughs> shirt, I was like, <laughs> wow. Uh, they're so extra. Brilliant. Did you guys know there was a sequel made to this, by the way? I, I, I had a feeling there was. Um I obviously didn't look into it too much, but uh, uh, try finding this one to rent, it actually came up with a TV show. So <laughs> yes, I saw that advertised as well. Um, with, uh, what's her face? Uh, Zoe Saldana, is it? Who's in it? Who's in it? And um, is it set in Paris? Which I think is meant to be a slight dig at either the UK <laughs> or Germany if you're taking like the thing of the untrustworthy neighbours <laughs> but uh, yeah I was quite curious about that one apparently it's four hours long and stretches the plot out too much but it's supposedly a very good adaptation of the book right I have I have heard of it but I didn't hear particularly good things about the series and I did think when I was watching um, Rosemary's Baby again that there was a sequel but I, I can't remember without just imagining it but no I've not seen it any of those two. The fact you never hear any of them talked about, I guess it goes to show the quality of them most likely. Can I just say, Minnie's cooking's on point because them desserts looked absolutely delicious. And throughout, <laughs> throughout my... In- <laughs> You'd be so easily manipulated. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, desserts. I mean, I've just got a dessert shop open around the corner. You know, like they do these takeaways. It like opens at like yeah. 4pm and closes at 11. And I'm like, oh my God, because my sweet tooth is something else. And I always remember them desserts out of Rosemary's Baby and thinking, God, bloody love one of them. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it- a film not to watch on an empty stomach, isn't it? I... <laughs> I but there's one bit where they've just moved in. Like, they've literally just finished the dinner. It's like, let's make love. Like, You've just eaten. Come on. <laughs> totally. I can get on board with that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Like, tea settle, man. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you know, you either, you either eat a hearty dinner or you make love, but you generally don't do both. Oh, you make it one after the yeah, other. Yeah, you make, you make um, love before you eat the dinner. Get yourself a, get yeah. yourself a bit of hunger going, do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, steak they had I liked how rare the steak was like, it was on that pan for like two oh, seconds might, might as well done. put it in my toaster brilliant <laughs> uh, there used to be a dessert shop around the corner of my house when I lived in uh, East London and it was really funny because it's a dessert shop that had a bouncer <laughs> I don't know how much shit goes down in a dessert shop it made me wonder if like the uh, bouncer was like a friend of a family who owned it and they want to lend him money but he's too proud to ask so they go tell you what if you're a bouncer for us we'll pay you like 10 grand for the night or something along <laughs> those lines just a way of finding a way of giving him cash I can see no other reason for an ice cream shop to have a bouncer it's not like sugar it sends you off your head clearly <laughs> so if Rosemary's baby 
the performances in this one. I think this is the first time I knowingly watched Mia Farrow in anything. Yeah. And she really, really impressed me. I mean, I know her best through Woody Allen. Hmm. So, was, was yeah, she's she, surrounded by very dubious men. But Was she in The Omen? No. Or am I thinking of someone else? I think you're thinking of somebody else. Uh, I thought she played the nanny in The Omen, the one that throws herself out the window. Mm, no, I, but I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I obviously am. But yeah, I think I'm with you in that because I may have seen her in other things, but not not consciously realizing. But yeah, like, I don't think there's one bum note in the entire film when it comes to the cast. Just everyone was brilliant at the role they had. Oh, by the way, she was in Veolman in the 2006 version. Ah, that'll be. The uh, I believe he's also married to Frank Sinatra, so you know it's uh, oh probably I think Woody Allen would have been a, a strong step down from Frank Sinatra. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there was absolutely no bum notes at all in the cast. One really minor thing that I didn't like about the film is a very minor thing, and this became a trope after the film, admittedly, is the use of an old convenient book to advance the plot. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you look at a page and it's like a page is describing exactly what's happened. I mean, I suppose it's very consistent with, uh, you know, no one's going to believe her here and mm. stuff, even though the truth is right in front of her. But at the same time, I thought ah, it's a little bit hokey. I mean, I assume, it's, I assume it happens in the novel. So I'm stuck. You do have Hutch, was it? Yeah. I mean, he was clearly well researched I mean the first thing we see him talking about is the history of the building they're thinking about moving into so he obviously you know has a lot of resources so he's gone to lengths to find this blue book that I think then kickstarts her little investigation I suppose but you know she goes to this bookshop oh do you happen to have these books on witchcraft you know you would look at a quite a few different ones before you settled on <laughs> what might actually be happening but yeah I, I know what you mean it is convenient but I don't think it's too convenient though because the length of the film compared to what's happening I think it's fine really what a backing story the house has as well dead children witchcraft yeah. alleged devil worship in it you know <laughs> like yeah this is a load of red flags in fact the building they shot outside is the same building that later 12 years later john lennon would be killed outside Mm, that's always something stuck (laughs) in my mind i was going to mention that it's quite a dark and murky sort of (laughs) building isn't it (laughs) it's absolutely wonderful effective set and i did like that you know as we're getting shown around the beginning we get to know it get to see the whole Mm. thing it's good world building very good efficient world building uh, and I liked that rear projection for the elevator as well. That was nice. Mm. Uh, anything else you want to say about Rosemary's Baby? Why it's so darn good? I just think Mia Farrow just knocked it out of the park with the character. The joy of, you know, possibly starting a family and, you know, having to go through all those changes that a woman goes through went through pregnancy. But clearly this isn't a normal pregnancy, you know, and also being gaslit by people around her especially her husband and she just just displays that so well she's absolutely brilliant this but the entire cast like you've said is outstanding and i really like that in the inclusion of that tannis route because obviously <laughs> that's something that hutch picks up on as 
I've never heard of that. And obviously we find out more in the book that all them witches. And then that is sort of give away with Dr. Saperstein, who's also into a bit of the old <laughs> Tannis route. So mm. it's, it's, I think it's just such a brilliant film on so many levels and it's so well performed. I, I truly think this is probably one, you know, one of the few five star films out there. I, can, I don't think there's anything for me anyway. I can't fault a single thing. And if you want to see a bad version of this movie, Devil's Dew is a complete rip-off of it. I now like Devil's Dew even less having seen this one. <laughs> so, uh, with Roman Polanski, by the way, Steph, what are the other great films that you've seen by him? Oh, well, as Jim previously mentioned, Ninth Gate, that's one of my favourite films. That's got a, a Satanism angle. There's a great one as well with Harrison Ford. Oh, is that frantic? Yeah. Excellent movie. Frantic. Where his wife goes missing yes. in France. And he has to go and find her. Yeah, I think I might have seen that one actually as well. Yeah. So yeah, chalk up another one. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen uh, Oliver Twist by him. It was it was quite good. I've not seen the Oliver <laughs> Twist. I've always been put off by Oliver Twist because my father was quite into it and would go up on about it all the time. So it's like one of those things where you kind of feel like you know it, but you've never seen it. And they're just put off for it. <laughs> There's, he's done some other stuff. I think there's a film called What? That's weird. That's like very surreal sort of swinging 60s type. He's got quite a, a different mix out of there. And so a lot of people like Chinatown and that's probably worth a watch. But for me, I didn't quite get that. But definitely if you want something horror related, check out The Ninth Gate if you've never seen it. Can't go wrong. And now folks, from one great director... To another, we are about to move on to Ben Wheatley's Kill List. everybody from the year 2011 what did you guys think of this one i'm gonna start with you jim uh definitely a film of two halves um it kind of starts off almost as like a fly on the wall of a man desperately trying to cling on to a family life that is circling the drain uh clearly everyone is unhappy but for some reason he just doesn't want to let go and then when his friend pops around trying to convince him to come back to work which it turns out that work is killing people <laughs> it, it it starts to take an interesting turn michael smiley is simultaneously intimidating and hilarious mm. the type of person who if he spoke to you wouldn't be sure whether you were going to laugh or cry <laughs> just has that absolutely confusingly ambiguous aura to it and then yeah they're having the dinner party things escalate everyone's drinking like, it really does you know it's a good advert for the perils of booze that's for sure <laughs> just everyone everyone gets angry one minute they're fighting, the next minute they're having a great time, then they're fighting again, like sometimes literally. <laughs> like just trying to 
be a friend and say, no, you can't drive home, you've had too much to drink, and they end up having a fist fight about it. <laughs> That's a good insight into the kind of people we're spending a couple of hours with, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. That first act is just phenomenal. Like a kitchen sink drama, if it just so happens to be about two, two hitmen. Yeah, it's very Mike Lee for the first like, half an hour. And then, all of a sudden, it's flipped on its head. And it's a really graphic hitman like thriller. The first few kills in this just are really, really unsettling. I mean, like, obviously, we've all watched a lot of you know nasty mm. films in our time, but just the way everything is staged is just got that pulling up the pit of your stomach. Like you want to watch it, but you don't. And it's, especially when they get to the librarian and he pulls out that long hammer. And he starts going to town on his knee. That was just horrible to watch, but you can't take your eyes away. But then it's flipping its head <laughs> a third time. Yeah. When it, we go, okay, you know, you think you're watching a, a Hitman film. Well, it's actually going to be a folk horror movie. I want to discuss later on if the transition is maybe slightly too abrupt. But from the beginning of that film, you have no idea how that movie's no. going to end. It's a really unintentionally funny quote of the box where it says, one of the scariest hitmen films ever made. And I say, like, what are the others? <laughs> what are the other scary hitman movies? Definitely a unique type, isn't it? I was trying to explain uh, Kill List to somebody the other day, and I likened it to a bit like From Dust Till Dawn, how it feels like two, I suppose it, probably even three different movies all in one except From Dust Till Dawn seems to flaw the, the two genres probably a bit better than this does it gets the final act. It's quite a sort of sudden twist on things. But I remember the first time I watched it, so I mean, I've only seen it for the second time the other day, and the first time I found it so incredibly violent. And strangely enough, upon this second viewing, I didn't find it as violent, maybe because I knew what was coming. Mm. But oh yeah, when he when he's smashing that librarian's head in, and there's this like piece of his scalp just flying as his head's caving in, and then and then obviously the guys later on where he's smashing his face into the, the wall or what have you, and it's just so violent. And Neil Maskell, I mean, he can just look like some empty vessel. I mean, you just look at him and he's just kind of doesn't give a shit. Especially when the home life at the beginning, you know, when they're arguing and that sometimes. He just doesn't look like he cares about his family. Then the next minute, he's snuggling with his wife, and you're like, you can't sort of pin him down as a character, and clearly something had gone on in Kiev that has kind of fucked him up in the head, I think. Or maybe it's because of the of the, of the life serving in the army. That's probably more fucked him up in the head. Let's talk about this. What do you guys think happened in Kiev? Because I have a very definite interpretation. Well, it's, it's obviously something went wrong you know uh it could be maybe some collateral damage perhaps he's killed the wrong person and therefore that's why this court are after him but it, everything leads back to that i mean i didn't pick up on anything that you know had a definitive reason as to what went on there i took it as he killed a kid and there's a reference to that later on where it's something that Gal says about, uh, you know, at least you, at least you didn't kill a kid or something along those lines. There's a flippant line that, that puts the idea in there. Because that's, that's the sort of, a bit like in Bruges, actually, where that's yeah, the back yeah. of the story. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's the sort of thing that would fuck you up. We know the cult 
see him as a viable candidate to become the new Antichrist. And I think part of that is going to be based upon him having done that. Their plan is for him to do these killings, which are essentially sacrifices. You know, the people want to die. They consider it an honour to be killed by Mm. him. For them, this is a great thing. And they're like, he's a viable candidate to do this. And I think, okay, well, he's got to have done something really fucked up for that to be the option. And I think it was presumably by accident. I think a guy killed a child. Which, of course, he does later on by the end of the film as well, <laughs> where he kills his own child. With a bit of, you know, a bit of foreshadowing at the beginning with the uh, kid on the, on the wife's back as they're playing, and the super <laughs> slow-mo with the swords and comes back later. Uh, yeah, you've got the tiki torches in the garden as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, just totally normal tiki torches. Do you think the cult, though, because they, obviously they had um, background on them, from the first hit with the priest, but also Kiev. Do you think the interests into both Jay and Gal were there beforehand? Like, do you think they're the ones that put them on that mission? Like, how long have they been working for them? Because that's something they do ask them. Have we been working for you guys all along? Do you think they were, or is this just something that's come to light more recently that they've got this background on them? It's a good question. I think indirectly they were probably working for them. The reason I think that is because they have a file on them. So I don't know that, they, that this is a long-term relationship, but I do think that they were monitoring them for a while. Mm. Like, or they were probably monitoring everyone, right? You know, we're, or within this very limited sphere of hitmen, yeah. we're probably monitor, monitoring all of them and thinking, all right, one of these guys might be a viable candidate to be the new Antichrist. And, uh, well, actually, I say Antichrist, that's the implication, but Fiona, over the dinner table, reveals she doesn't really know anything about Christianity. When she got that conversation about mm. the Troubles in Ireland, right, and she's like, it's the same religion, right, and uh, Gal's like, it's really not. And that, for me, was a way of saying this is actually not based upon Christian theology, this cult. So, well, I'm saying Antichrist, you know, it's, I guess I'm using that as a shorthand for some sort of demonic presence that they're trying to create in him. And we watch the process happen, which is successful. They're going to have some moral detachment anyway, aren't they? I mean, you're in that line of work. You're not exactly going to be the nicest of people even though their job does turn into a moral crusade halfway through it after that horrible moment in the warehouse it's perhaps a little more of a way to vent some frustration more than anything it comes across but uh, yeah that's probably why they've had an eye on them for all that time it's just because if you're in that line of work you're not going to be a nice person, are you really? Mm, but uh, some one thing I noticed. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong. Gal didn't actually execute any of the kills. No, he didn't. Until obviously when they were being attacked by the cult towards the end, mm. when he's trying for it basically is mostly a survival because it was Jay who shot first at the cult. So yeah. prior to that, none of <laughs> even he might have paid for the room, but he didn't actually bloody do anything else. The thing I liked about Gal is that you know Gal's the one who's leading the way. I mean, he's like, shit, I've made a monster here, <laughs> you know? Like, Gal is in some ways, he's far better adjusted than Jay is. He's able to converse with strangers in a way that Jay isn't. We've got the bit where Jay's losing his shit while we're in the restaurant. I think, for Jay, this is all about... <laughs> 
his masculinity here, you know, we're like, all right, his wife, we know, is harder than him. And then you've got, like, the bit where he's, bits where he's with Gal, and Gal's talking about all the sex he's having and things like this, you know, and uh, Jay's just totally insecure about all of this. I think there's a lot in this film about him feeling like his masculinity is being called into question here. Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's a bit where he's unable to tolerate other people talking about anxiety because these are emotions that he is not comfortable expressing. And I think, actually, this is... To go into the kill the child theory, the bit where he's really beating the shit out of the characters is after he finds out that they were videotaping child molestation. And that's when he really lets the characters have it. And you're like, well, is he also beating himself up here because of what he has done in the past? No, I'm not implying that he raped a kid, but I took it as he's been responsible for children suffering. Mm, yeah, I think that's a good... A good idea into it, yeah. I'd go with that. Coming across that sort of thing would make you disgusted and horrified anyway. And like the fact that this person is on your kill list to begin with is just going to fuel that fire for when it comes to actually doing the job, isn't it? It's not just that guy, folks. He also kills the associate. You know, he and don't get me wrong. You're right that like if you're in that line of work and you've not got issues about killing someone, hmm. and one of your targets did that then you're probably, you know, makes it only makes sense you kill other people yeah. that we hang out with. But there's there's a bigger picture going on here. I think it's such a such a great film. Like you said, you know, Michael Smiley is brilliant in it, as is Neil Maskell. And I just thought it was interesting how Jay's wife, Shell, you know, talks about, oh, you've, you know, you've had eight months off. She's just so blasé that the fact that, you know, her husband's in the killing business, you know, her husband's a hitman. It's like, you know, come on, <laughs> yeah. come on back to work, get your tools out at garage, you know, crack on. <laughs> and then next minute, oh, yeah, but you leave me for like months at a time. And I feel like it's, I'm being a single parent. It's like, bloody hell, woman, do you want him to go back working now? Yeah, because it's like, you know, he's, <laughs> he, he was away for too long and now you want fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Their relationship was so well done like mm. i liked the film grounded the horror in something relatable because it's got perspective moments from the kid here the only time we enter the kid's head is the horror of his parents arguing with each other you know it gets properly vicious it gets very uncomfortable to watch as we're sniping across the table two people who are in a state of mutual resentment with each other and it's really interesting character dynamics that we have here yeah, I'm sorry. I think it's, um, I mean, you're probably better qualified to mention it than me, but uh, it's, it's, I think it's a case of two people that are fed up with each other, but too scared to do anything about it. So they're constantly clashing. And obviously it's making a really terrible environment for their son. And the way it escalates at the dinner party they have, it's throwing the plate on the floor and tips everything off the table and just, goes nuts, so then Michael Smiley's character goes up to comfort the kid. Uh, I will say, Jim saying that I'm better qualified to talk about it because I'm a psychologist, it's not because I've got a shit relationship <laughs> with my wife. Yeah, David doesn't go around, you know, like, pulling everything off the table with tablecloth, trying to do a magic act. <laughs> if someone says something wrong. Yeah, sorry, a bit of context might have helped. <laughs> there's something quite, like, not nice or sweet or anything of like that, but there's something 
interesting about it how they are still able to make up within the same night. Mm. You know, like it cuts to them all just having a laugh together again. Like we can assume that this happens quite often. Yeah, and I think alcohol definitely has something to do with it as well. Um, yeah, I've I've seen people like that firsthand. You know, <laughs> they've had too much to drink. One minute they turn into the Hulk, the next minute they want to be around everyone. The post-recession context is really interesting as well. I mean, I'm thinking there's a, there's a few horror films, like Exhibit A is one, which explicitly deal with financial strains that have come around since the global recession. And here, you know, we're seeing this, we're seeing a financial strain, we're seeing them worrying about how the money's coming in. There's a bit of a state-of-the-nation feel. As I said, the relatable element of the domestic feud at the beginning that says Mm. this is a very grounded horror film in some ways and yet when we get this change in pace when it turns into a folk horror is it a little bit too abrupt well it comes out of nowhere doesn't it like one minute they're scouting out this building for was it an mp they're meant to be killing I like to think it's a Tory MP as well. Oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the man, the and uh, all of a sudden they turn around and there's a cult walking through the forest <laughs> that they're hiding in. So like, that, that's just out of nowhere. And then, bang, that just goes out of control. That tunnel section was so claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And all they've got is the light off the headlamps. So it's... Uh, it, <laughs> it's really creepy and yeah the fact that they're in those tight spaces as well just yeah kind of takes your breath away doesn't it and yeah pulling him uh yeah then he gets uh stabbed uh by the cultists because obviously he's surplus to requirement they only want uh the other guy so they mm. kill him off basically and he's pulling him out that little hole where he's just been pretty much stabbed to death and you see all of his intestines coming out of his stomach that one nasty just, that yeah <laughs> obviously they're doing uh, hanging about for try and do some uh, surveillance on the mp now when they see that cult organizing they see the woman hanging herself and there's a chap with a mustache mm. at the side who kind of welcomes it on i'm guessing he's the mp yeah and it's kind of it almost like he's welcoming it but if it's a change of power because obviously what the the job they're doing is was restructuring so it's essentially they're restructuring by um, taking out that mp who might be the sort of head of the cult at that moment i'm not sure i'm just reading possibly a bit too much into it i took it along those lines as well uh you could take us along the lines of it just you know whatever this thing is it needs a new body basically yeah like a new mm. i don't know if it's a new head of the cult or a new sort of focus because like you said they're all thanking him they all know yeah. he's all the people that are on the list, they all know who he is, even though he doesn't. They all know that he's probably mm. destined to be part of the reconstruction, you know, the reconstruction of that cult, the point of where he's actually the main focus of it. I thought at first it was abrupt, but you know, there's a lot of soft signs for it. The movie, obviously, the the sort of the thank you bit, I probably missed quite a bit on the first watch because you know when you're watching a movie for the first time anyway, you kind of try to take everything in. And it's only on a second watch and you know what's happening that you digest everything else, what's being said. And I think it did 
did benefit from a second watch. And I enjoyed it a lot more the second time round. See, so, you know, there's a lot going on throughout the movie to, to sort of merit that finale. However, it did still feel a bit, a bit too abrupt, like a bit too quick, a, a bit too. It just felt a bit hmm. not as right as it could have been. I completely agree with you. The um, second viewing thing, and especially because this is my second time watching a film, I got a lot more from it this time. It's on one hand, it's less ambiguous than Rosemary's Baby. In as much as Rosemary's Baby, you know, we don't see anything. We we have the, the a slight glimpse of some eyes, and they're going like you know, those eyes or whatever, right? But Kill This is a lot more in your face. On the other hand, it holds more back than Rosemary's Baby. You know, Rosemary's Baby has a very explicit explanation at the end for the entire thing that you've watched, and Kill This doesn't. As long as it makes sense to the cult, that's okay because the character doesn't need to understand this. But what we do have in it, this is why on second time I liked it a lot more, the sense of coercion in it. Once you know the basic plot, you pick up on the various ways in which you're being manipulated throughout it. But also, these kind of themes of sin and salvation that are running through the entire thing. And it's not something I really thought about, but like take the role of, uh, of Gal's faith that comes up every so often in this. And at the same time, you've got this other character... You've got Jay, who doesn't doesn't have that to him, you know? This is a guy who, I guess, his transition, and we'll come on to this again with Apostle, but I guess his sort of transition here is whether it's what he was looking for or not, he does find some form of a purpose by the end. And, oh, quick question. His wife in it, Shell, is Shell in on this or not? Because she does push him back into work, and then once the kid's been stabbed on her back, you see her doing the laugh. I thought that's a hysterical laugh. I thought she was just completely out of it. I didn't think that she was in on it at all, but I do know that divides people. I don't think she was in on it. I think she yeah. was laughing just purely because he took the mask off her. She saw it was her husband and thought, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> more of a knowing smile, like, you know, when someone says, oh, you're going to be the death of me. That, that, that sort of thing, <laughs> you know. I don't know that you guys have been quite mild. <laughs> like, <laughs> a knowing smile that she's having here, you know, it's him. Like I think it's just the sheer fucking insanity of this moment. Like this isn't a person in control. This isn't a person finding anything funny. The worst thing that could have happened is it just happened. I've just been like, you know, my child is dead at the hands of my husband as a cult watches us. We're fucked. <laughs> we, have, we have no way out of this scenario. And God knows what's just happened to him yeah. here. Yeah, the, the, there are zero tells as to if she's in on it. I mean, she's she, she has no problem shooting any of them when they're trying to storm that little cottage they're hiding out in. So mm. that that just tells me that she's she's none the wiser. She's got no clue as to what's going on either. But yeah, I think that little smile is just just a way of saying, well, this is fucking ironic, isn't it? <laughs> mm. I mean, she's so good with a pistol as well, Jesus. That's some skill. I think, she, I think you know what? I think Jay should have stayed at home with his son and just sent her out. <laughs> you know, she seemed, she seemed more cool-headed than, <laughs> than her husband. I mean, what is interesting, you know, Gal, you know, I know he's like the character that's, you know, single womanizer and all that, but he seems such a much more grounded person, like a family man almost, Whereas it's Jay who, who probably would make sense being the sort of single guy 
trying to just deal with his own issues. You know, like the <laughs> it's like they're living in the wrong bodies mm. almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, folks, we've got anything else you want to bring in about kill list here? There's a few things that I picked up, like the, the, the part where they find the eviscerated rabbit in the garden and then he proceeds to cook it and eat it. That was baffling. I, I know he was... It's some sort of masculinity thing. <laughs> but that, that was... That could have been anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, is, that must have been killed by the cult, right? So this is... Oh, uh, yeah, it's got to have been. It wouldn't yeah. have been the cat. I don't. I definitely don't <laughs> think it was his cat. And, uh, but she does say something, yeah. doesn't she, which is interesting, which I noticed on the second watch, and I thought, is that an, an analogy for her husband or what have you? And she says... And son asks what's happened, and he says, oh, the, the cat's killed the rabbit. He said, but your dad thinks it's because the cat's done it because we're underfed, so he's bringing a present. She goes, mm. when, you know, really, it's just the, the cat's just doing it, killing for fun. Mm. So, and now I've yeah, just been yeah. sat there. I was sat there at the time trying to wrap my brain as to how that could correlate to the, what's going on screen. So is Jay think he's doing it for a, for a cause, but when in actual fact he's just doing it because he likes killing. Yeah, because it creates a... Like, we see as it goes on, I don't know if it's necessarily that he likes killing, but he's got a very violent instinct. Gal is a professional hitman who's like, mate, this is getting a bit dark for me. <laughs> so, like... So, yeah, I, th- yeah, I think that's a really good catch. I think, I think it's sort of saying, like, for something instinctual to the violence that he's committing here. There was another moment where he's, he's come home and, like, the, the cult have killed his cat and they stood in the garage. I fucking loved that cat. I don't know. Yeah, neither did I until it died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some of the little observational uh, bits, the sort of slice mm. of life stuff was really good. Like when we're talking about hotel soaps. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, this is what hitmen get up to. Yeah, they're being paid, like, you clearly see it's thousands of pounds and they're nicking the little samples <laughs> out of the bathroom. <laughs> I tell you what, there's nothing better than a sample, though. You know, like if you've seen a premier travelling and they've got them little biscuits, I'm always into them. <laughs> oh absolutely <laughs> like fuck it I'm getting my yeah. money's worth although know? I know some people I've not done this but I know some people who've been abroad to hotels and it's like Egyptian towels or something and and oh, Egyptian cotton towels and they're like oh these towels hmm. are really good and then they shove them in the bloody suitcase and bring them back home with them people will fucking nick out <laughs> I tell you you know that, that towel's been used probably by you know a bazillion people because it's in a hotel yeah, yeah. but they thought oh no be lovely in bathroom at home that I've just I just take it home with me. Best souvenir. Hotel won't miss it. <laughs> so, kill list. Let's do ratings here. I assume Rosemary's Baby was a five for all of us. Yeah. What would you rate kill list? I would give this one four stars. Yeah. Overall, I really liked it. There's a lot in this film that works, particularly in the first half for me. I think the the main thing I want to change in this is Jay as a protagonist, he's really watchable. I just sort of thought I needed a bit more from him, you know, but I don't know if it was about the performance. I don't know if it was about the writing. I just, I didn't feel as emotionally invested in his journey as I think I should have been, Mm. you know, the kind of like the bits that you relate to the sort of, you know, yeah, you lazy bastard, get up sort of stuff. Like the, Create a good context for a character, but at the end of it, I was more impressed with the cleverness of the plotting than I was feeling anything for the particular events themselves. 
I'd agree with that. It it does it did feel a bit rushed in that element of you know, it was going from one kill to the next kill to the next. I agree with everything you've said there, David, and I'd give it four out of five. Yeah, I'd give it a four as well. I mean, it's it's a really good film, but on top of everything you said, it's just a bit bleak, isn't it? <laughs> just, just it, it can be a bit too much at times. I, as I say, I'm, I'm not normally one to wince at violence and gore, but a lot, a lot of it is very stark and nasty. I couldn't really bring myself to say, yeah, that's a five-star film. Uh, it's just probably just a bit grim. If we thought that one was bleak, we're going to go on to an even bleaker one. <laughs> Everybody, let's move on to 2018's Apostle. Let us begin. by director Gareth Evans, who is, of course, best known for doing the Raid films. Wonderful movies, and sometimes a wonderful filmmaker. I reckon this is going to be the most divisive film of the night. Steph, what did you think of Apostle? Well, I didn't really know what to expect with Apostle. I mean, I've seen it advertised on Netflix forever in a day and I've never actually got around to viewing it. And then, lo and behold, we choose it for this podcast. Mmm, interesting. It's oh, it's a, a film that very much divides me. I mean, I enjoyed it to some degree. The, the idea that they go to this island that's been set up by people from the mainland who... Finding a better life where there's no taxes and and all this that and other, and where they worship this goddess of the island. But it all—I don't want to say this—but it it's all a bit sort of paint by numbers in in a fashion. And the only real one interesting thing about it that really sets it apart from the rest, which is the goddess angle, is hardly touched upon and rushed. I thought there was some good performance in it. I really enjoyed uh, Michael Sheen's performance. I didn't realise it was him at the mm. fir- at first when he's standing them all at the table, it was only afterwards um, when he's speaking with his Welsh accent that I thought, oh, bloody hell, it's, <laughs> it's Michael Sheen. <laughs> Dan Stevens. Now, I'm not sure whether I liked his performance or not. I just know that he has a lot of white in his eyes that were darting all over the show and that really distracted me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was just... Uh, I, there's elements that I thought were good... But it felt like it kind of felt like a film of, of like two completely di- not completely different films, but two different stories in one, and it was like a half baked attempt at both put together. I, I can't really explain what I mean, but there's elements I enjoyed. I thought it was nasty in, in some places, particularly involving the young woman. I think it was Fionn, is it? Yeah, and right. and and the a teenage boyfriend as young lovers who clearly it's either it's forbidden to sort of couple up on the island or it, the, the young lad wasn't exactly the, the prime choice of a father there's some quite nasty ideas in there but it, it just didn't 100% work for me to be honest Jim what did you think yeah I really liked it I get where Steph's coming from there's a division <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it does feel like two films running 
concurrently next to each other. And yeah, I kind of agree that it doesn't quite gel like it, when it comes to the climax and you know everything tying together. But overall, it was very good. I did get real big survival horror video game vibes from this. I, I just, you know, pretty much every scene I thought, oh, that's this game, you know, Resident Evil 4, Evil Within, you know. I, I guess maybe the director might have had some influence by them, quite possibly. Uh, I know he's roughly our age. But overall, like, the performances were great. I, you know, again, everyone in it fantastic. Even Dan Stevens, I, he, I'd like him to read me a bedtime story, to be honest. <laughs> Your man crush, Jim. <laughs> That deep voice of his. That's probably why he uh, played uh, Beast in the uh, Disney remake. He's seen his little band of criminals turning into cult leaders. They they were all fantastic. Going on to what you mentioned about the forbidden teenage couple, what I got from this is you've. I'm probably skipping ahead a bit here, but we, we've got this goddess that basically nurtures the island or kills it and for whatever reason she's fighting against them all now no one had none of the young people there had a mother so i'm assuming that anyone who gives birth dies which is why the girl's dad was raging about her getting pregnant because you know Maybe she's too young. And he mentioned something about all the kids are abominations and so on. We saw what happened when the sheep gave birth to the lamb. It wasn't fully you know, formed. It had you know, its stomach open and stuff like that. So perhaps that's you know, part of the curse that is on this island. You know, we, we don't, the only woman we see is at the beginning um, greeting that girl so obviously they've come from outside and you don't see anyone else either with a mother or with a child no i would agree with that however towards the end when you'll have to prompt me his name it's one of the three you know the three sort of guys who mm. came to the island the one who goes absolutely nuts and yeah quinn quinn yeah so quinn obviously kidnaps thomas's sister and Malcolm, yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right? This is because I don't take notes, and this is a problem. Sorry. Um, uh, and, and Malcolm's daughter, and he and Quinn says basically, "I'm gonna, you're gonna be my brides for me to get you up duff, and let's have a baby every year to appease the goddess." So if they, if they obviously die in childbirth or what have you, then that's a bit short-lived, isn't it? Is it not that the babies are going to be sacrificed? Because I thought what was happening here is the goddess is like, ha, mere animal blood. This does nothing for me. So that's where they're like, all right, we need to start sacrificing humans to this uh, to this goddess. Yeah, they've got the blood jars, haven't they? But yes, we we first see them like draining their arms into it. What the fuck's going on here? And then you know, it slowly clicks as to why everyone leaves a jar of blood outside the mm. door every night. Bits of world building like that were well done, but like I gotta be honest, I am far more siding with Steph. I find this film really boring at points. Like there's some good bits to it, and there's some good ideas in there. The things that I liked about it, I liked that the cult in this were based around kind of libertarian ideals. You know, where it's, it interrogates for motives quite well. 
you've got them saying, ah, yeah, well, you know, we uh, we want no wars, no money, no taxes, freedom and liberty, etc. You know, these are like the sort of guys in America that will go off and like, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, try and take their own land and guard it with guns, right? <laughs> and I like the way that, you know, Malcolm's saying uh, after this attempted, attempted assassination, he's going, we all bleed together. You know, he's doing his Blood Brothers thing here. And at the same time, this is a cult that defines itself by freedom, but has absolutely no place for voices of dissent. And I thought that hmm. was really interesting. And it did make the film quite, I don't know if I'd call it unique, but it did, it did, make, it, it did, it did make it stick out a bit. Yeah. There's also some very nice lyrical dialogue throughout it, particularly from uh, Michael Sheen. His performance as Malcolm was the best thing in the movie. I thought the biggest problem with the film, though, was Thomas. I don't think it was a performance. The performance was fine, even if a little bit too kind of twitchy. But he was just not a very interesting lead. I think maybe... It's coming from this as uh, as a lapsed Catholic myself, or as, as an atheist. There's something about films where the primary thing a character needs to do is like you know wrestle with her faith that is just inherently quite uninteresting. And I thought he was such a kind of like blank slate. You know, his backing story is really rushed, and it's strange that his backing story is rushed considering just how much a film stretches out its plot for most of its running mm. time. Like, we've got these sort of never-ending uh, chase sequences. And uh, while he can kind of go into action hero mode when the plot demands it, and these strangely out of place, yeah. uh, he's like, you know, <laughs> booting people's legs away and stuff and battering them, um, I just didn't find him an interesting protagonist. I think the main thing that it did bring in as Steph said was the goddess angle actually that was also quite interesting like a very literal metaphor for kind of capitalism and the sort of rape and exploitation of the natural world here that this is a cycle this is something that's going to keep on happening and while we do have the possibility of rebirth at the end with Thomas becoming the new god I just sort of thought, eh, I want to see, you know, I want to see these films be more developed, and I want a protagonist that I feel more invested in, someone that I give a shit about, you know, mm. and I just didn't have it with him. I don't know if it's a performance. I don't really know Dan Stevens from other stuff, but for whatever reason, it didn't work for me. I, I, I thought I thought this is a, a mediocre film that had all the makings of a good film. Yeah, I think Dan Stevens was he in um, he's in the guest, weren't he? And he was also yeah. in oh, Downton uh, Abbey, were he? Yeah, I think he was in that. I've yeah. never watched it myself, so. <laughs> I think I've only seen a clip of him in that, and I think that's kind of like where he kind of got his big break. But yeah, it, I, I would have liked to have seen more as well with the actual um, community on the island. I don't think it was really well explored, sort of like the unity, or apart from obviously the church at the, near the beginning, or, or at least a religious meeting place for uh, Malcolm to spout his, his nonsense. But... Um, there wasn't really. We kind of only got like sort of half facts about what what can and can't be done on the island just from like passing sort of dialogue. And I mean, I didn't even know what them jars were for, really. You know, I was only till I read up later. It's like, oh yeah, because that's you put your blood in there and it pleases the goddess and all that. And I'm like, oh, I completely missed that. Maybe it was explained. <laughs> maybe I wasn't. You know, I must admit, I was watching this on the way to work and coming home from work on the bus, so I didn't really... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you watching it on your phone or a laptop? I was phone. 
Oh, <laughs> four with headphones in. <laughs> Trust me, I've had a lot. Chris of Nolan would have wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gareth Evans is going to be writing into the show because I know he's a listener. I'll be can give it a fair shot. Fucking nah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I saw. Oh, sorry, Steph. Go. Yeah, so I I just would have liked to have seen maybe that community have developed more for you know if if it's so such a tight knit community or not. But clearly they're just obeying orders and real by iron fist although mm. it wasn't exactly the most um it hadn't gone that nasty to the point until quinn took over but i would have liked to have sort of explored more like goddess angle more and and her sort of weird henchman thing who like churning bodies up in his grinder i just i don't i don't know how he sort of fit into it all like where did he come from because we've seen the goddess but who the hell is he is it is he is he a creature that's lived on the island or is he somebody who is a human? I just don't bloody know. But I, I, yeah, I just felt there's too many things that were explained. And mm. I agree. The, the lore of it was all quite limited. I mean, on one hand, you can say, hey, it's a good thing the film leaves you want to know more. But it also left me wondering, where the fuck does the runtime actually go? Like it's a it's a two hour ten minute film which is for a horror film that's kind of pushing it. Rosemary's Baby is roughly the same length. Rosemary's Baby absolutely flew by, and with this one, there are moments of greatness in there. I really like the claustrophobic scene of the old lady coming up, right? Mm. But a lot of it, I was just like, I want to know more about this cult. Damn it, I want to see uh, what the day to day life of this cult's like a bit more. You know, yeah. I want to see the see the sort of norms that these people develop. I want to see what their what sorts of faith they have. You know, there's some quite interesting bits, like when they're saying, "Oh, we didn't help that lamb," you know, on the boat, and you know, it's that sort of libertarian thing of like, "Oh, your house is on fire, eh?" Well, you know, you should you should invest it in the hose. <laughs> fire, you know, we're not paying for your your fucking fire to be put out, right? And so bits like that were quite interesting and. Again, this this goddess angle was quite cool, even if it was revealed strangely early on in the film and then not mentioned again for about an hour. But yeah, just I, I don't know. I, I I was just left thinking there's there's so much more of this this movie could have been. This one really good scene is the last scene. Again, it's a bittersweet ending, just like. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, where like you know Thomas does find purpose. I mean, fuck it, this is a guy who's consistently coming out of quite emo lines about like you know I died that day, and this like obsession with his sister's innocence, which I found bordering on incestuous. <laughs> um, yeah, he's also uh, he's he, but you know he also like he becomes life itself. He goes from having quite I don't know if you'd say he's got suicidal ideation throughout it, but he's he certainly doesn't seem to have anything to live for. And then by the end, you know, he's, he's a God, you know, he's plantly, he's become part of a plant life and he's, he's rejuvenating this island. I thought on paper, it's a really good arc. I just find it just too kind of moody too sort of one note for most of it. Yeah. He's clearly got an addiction to something. Like at the beginning of the film, he's an absolute mess. And, Mm. you know, Although we don't really have any big revelation with him, his role just does seem to be the shepherd for the audience. 
he's taking you from one revelation to another rather than his own arc evolving in any way. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, his character interactions are all fine. He does get on with some of the villagers. But, um, Conveniently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, hello, young teenage boy. I happen to spot you canoodling with a young girl. You, yeah, can, yeah. you can help me. <laughs> How convenient. A film that this obviously takes from, and a film that we intentionally did not cover tonight, is The Wicker Man, which I'm sure we will get to at some point. Hey, this podcast, hopefully going to be doing this for years. Why waste a Wicker Man <laughs> early on? Now, I think uh, something this obviously takes from Wicker Man is a basic setup here of, all right, going to rescue a young woman on an island off the coast of the UK. And um, in this case, we're using the wonderful Kingdom of Wales. And, um, you know, this kind of rural cult out there. Something that you didn't have was like, I don't need it to be humorous. It doesn't need to be funny. But we didn't really, because we don't really know enough about Thomas, he's not a well enough defined character. We don't really have that fish out of water element to it. You know, we don't have the same kind of relatability of with the Wicker Man. You've got like, you know, the uptight uh, police officer seeing this increasingly ridiculous cult. We don't have the kind of conflict that's born from that situation. You know, instead it's like, okay, the cult are there as an antagonist here, but they're not characterised well. He isn't characterised well enough. There's not really enough of an ideological conflict between them. Mm. He's depressed and the cult are going, hey, we're all about freedom, but it's all still quite miserable there. And, you know, I just didn't, didn't think that... Uh, that clash of cultures, that clash of values, was well done enough. Yeah, and um, it does. It, well, it doesn't really seem like too much of a cult. It's more like these three leaders clinging on to their way of life. I mean, they, they've obviously established this. Well, going back to the video game reference, it's just like Rapture on Bioshock. It has exactly the same vibe to that. Like the, these guys, they're criminals. They've washed up on this island, and have managed to establish this way of life. That, you know, has been sustainable up to this point. But then, you know, this is where Thomas's character comes in because they're trying to get money to keep their lifestyle going. But it's only these three that are really kind of driving home. Like everyone else, just seems to go along with it rather than brainwashed we know how devout the other characters are yeah you you don't get any sense of that the i mean maybe one or two of them will come across as fanatical but a lot of them just seemed like they were just trying to get on with shit (laughs) (laughs) it's funny you should mention bioshock we've been uh, playing that quite a bit here uh i can tell you playing bioshock on the switch it's very very difficult to do the aiming much easier on the Xbox. <laughs> Good game, though. Uh, which also, just just like the comparison you're making, Bioshock also has the libertarians as the bad guys. Mm, so, yeah. yeah very similar. <laughs> very similar vibes. Uh, something I'll say in its favour. The torture sequences, those are really tough to watch. <laughs> like, the, uh, the rack sequence in particular, fuck. Like, this doesn't make torture look fun at all you, know, you couldn't you couldn't do like 
a parcel in 3D or anything along those lines. It's, uh, you know, this is a, a even bleaker than Kill List here. You know, this mm. makes... This makes Kill List look like uh, look like the Wicker Man. Mm. It's uh, very gory, very uncomfortable, except for the weird little moments of action movie, and very yeah. I thought, very effective. I, I suppose what it should be doing is kind of the extremity that people will go to to protect their beliefs, and that's mm. very relevant of religious organisations or re- religious cults. So I'm thinking of ISIS here, for instance. Right? You know, we know that people are capable of committing atrocious acts of violence in the name of a fanatical ideology. And yet the ideology itself just wasn't clearly enough, clearly defined enough to give this proper context. Hmm. Yeah, it just seemed fragmented in terms of who actually gave a shit. <laughs> I mean, you've, well, you've got the secret barn. I mean, that whole thing... But again, I'm t- uh, taking it back to the video game references. That torture sequence on the rack just was the evil within. Yeah, n- not quite literally something that happened in the game, but the the environment, the like old mechanical winch and that sort of thing, and the faceless you know guy who could have been anything. Is it you know someone outcast from the village? Is he another? Right. Is he some sort of demon, some sort of relative of the goddess? That's, you know, who knows? Yeah. It's just this really mysterious thing like, with this really weird face covering. And yeah, Agreed. what is <laughs> what steam is he held in? Is he is this an honor? Do all the villagers aspire to be? Yeah. You know, um, I, I can only assume that perhaps he's one of the uh, children that was born out of. I don't know, authorization of the cult or whatever. You know, again, was it Quinn? Sorry to say. Um, you know, when he was talking to his daughter, mentioned like, you know, the, the child that's going to be born is impure or whatever. Perhaps that's what they're referring to. And, you know, it just seems to be blindly serving, I mean, quite literally, with his big helmet or whatever it's meant to be. What but, did you guys yeah. think of the transition from? Quinn to becoming the main villain because I wouldn't think it convincing. I thought Malcolm was a much more interesting baddie for the film to have. He was much more, he's much better developed, he was much more nuanced and frankly much more charismatic. Yeah. I think Quinn, you know, from his peeping through the toilet door and you just knew from the start and I, it was um, Malcolm who was the much more interesting character and I, mm. and with. <sighs> Quinn sort of rise to lie, head on shore is, you know, kicking Malcolm out and sort of usurping the throne in a way. And that whole that whole sort of call to, oh, let's purify Jeremy because, you know, he, he's tried for, he's killed my daughter and hurt me, although clearly hadn't. And how the villagers just blindly sort of followed it, even though it doesn't really seem that much of a, a community or a strong sort of following our ideology within the community they all just seem to just be going along with it because they're on the island and they're being told what to do like sheep yeah. I, I also found which is, is a bit off subject but um malcolm's daughter who said to thomas oh you can hide here they won't find you here how how when malcolm quinn and i think it was frank 
um, when they, them three came to the island first, how would they not know about the mysterious little shack that <laughs> that's that's at the end of the field? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. All these these things just pulled yeah. out of nowhere, out of convenience, just serve the plot in, in many respects. Um, I, I thought there was there could have been a lot, a lot more sinister sort of development with Malcolm, but it just never happened. We just had the initial, and then you know at the end he turned out to be a more sympathetic character after Quinn went a bit. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming that transition power is just to illustrate how they've lost control over everything, really. I mean, Malcolm, at the beginning, he's the one most determined to cling on to this way of life that they've got for themselves. But as the film goes on, you can see him, you know, slowly coming around to the idea that, you know, maybe shit's gone too far, maybe we should give us up but it's Quinn who you know he, he's the I guess the zealot out of all of them who's desperate to cling on to this even more than the rest of them and as a result he's well I, I think his daughter and the boy is a straw that breaks the camel's back at this point and then you know at the realization of what happened this is a perfect opportunity for him to you know, assume power at the same time, I guess. I wonder if some of the problems in this film come from the decision to make it about a very young religion, because essentially this is something you've been doing for like 20 years, mm. right? And it means that they don't really have a big lore to go into here. You know, like with uh, Kill List, for instance, we don't necessarily learn much about the cult in Kill List, but we, we imagine that this has been going on for potentially centuries here. You know, Rosemary's Baby the lore is quite well established in using Christian lore. And I think with this one, if they, by focusing on like a young religion, then what they, what they maybe should have been looking at is the motivations that people have to join cults. Because if you can't necessarily talk about like the devotion of the followers and what you can have is, well, what's this fulfilling? I was recently reading the uh, Lawrence uh, Lawrence Wright book, uh, Going Clear, all about the Church of Scientology, which, for legal reasons, I will not say is a cult, so it's totally <laughs> off topic. Um, and something that that book kind of looks at, and also uh, Leah Remini's book about being a Scientologist as well, and along for a wonderful podcast on the topic, the uh, thing that we, that we sort of have in common is to look at what the appeal of cults are. You know, if you look at... Uh, well, what is this fulfilling for the individuals who join? What emotional benefits do they get with membership of the cult? And it's just not there with this film. This film's very emotionally cold. I think and, they try and establish that with uh, Malcolm's speech at the beginning. You know, the whole, like, I, I, I you know, can't quote literally what he says, but basically, no war. There's no one to answer to other than the people in the village. They all work for themselves, that sort of thing. And I think they were hoping that's enough to (laughs) go with. And the rest, they can just carry on with exposition, that sort of thing. I was just thinking a good point of comparison for this, actually, is the uh, the M. Night Shyamalan film The Village, right? Because... The motivation's very similar in this. Mm, you know, like yeah. in the village, it's people saying, all right, well, we want to leave behind the uh, big scary world out there. And, uh, you know, we're going to form this tight-knit community that's kind of based upon, you don't really go so much into a religious aspect of the village, but, you know, it's based upon sort of strict norms here. 
and there's problems with the village, but does a reasonably good job of grounding it in something. It grounds it in this sort of post-9-11 anxiety that people are experiencing. Whereas there, the closest that we really get to context is a bit about the uh, box war, and that's with that's with Thomas. You know, we find out about how he got his marks, why he'd kind of, uh, like mm. why he, why he'd sort he'd sort of given up on life essentially yeah. uh, from this sort of trauma. But we don't really know what the appeal is here beyond a few buzzwords. Which, to be fair, like the sort of idea of like, oh, you know, liberty. It's an interesting angle. It could be any organization here. You know, I, I want to know. Like, I want more about the cultists. I want more about why they're there. I want more about what they're getting from it. And frankly, I want to know more about the cult. Mm. Yeah, but despite all that, I still really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's let's do star ratings on this one. Uh, I'm gonna give this one two and a half. I'm gonna give it three out of five. I'm gonna give it a four because despite everything, despite its inconsistencies and brief exposition, I suppose and maybe slightly too long running time i still had a great time with it and you know by the end of it I, in a good way i, I was exhausted <laughs> it escalates quite a lot doesn't it and you know despite everything i thought it was a good time you know absolutely fair enough i mean it's one of the things where a lot of the time when you dissect a movie there are problems with it but if it's still you know if it works for you while you watch it that's by far the most important part. I imagine, you know, a lot of movies that I like, if we really sat down and picked apart character motivations, a lot of them probably wouldn't necessarily stand up to scrutiny. Mm. Or, you know, if you talk about, like, when we were doing the time travel, timey-wimey films a wee, a wee while back, a lot of great time travel films absolutely fall apart if you if you question them too much. Like, a great example of this is Back to Future Part 2. How can this plot possibly function since it requires... Biff to return to a future that he's now changed, right? But at the same time, it still works while you watch it. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah. Uh, Folks, we are going to start wrapping things up. So you'll know this system by now. We always like to finish off with a list. And for this one, I've chosen ScreenRant.com's The Creepiest Movies About Cults. This is based upon IMDb scores and it was compiled in the year 2020. So very recent. What do you guys think is on this? I'm going to go with, I quite like a film called The Conspiracy. That has mentions the Tarsus Club. Now, that's a bit not well known, so I don't know if that'll be on there, but I'm going to just throw that in the ring as a as a good film anyway. Is it on there? Conspiracy is not on there, but it is indeed a good film. I thought that was a fantastic kind of look at like sort of Alex Jones-style conspiracy theories. It's not on there. Absolutely. Oh, not all of these are horror films, by the way. Obviously, Wicker Man. Yep, Wicker Man's on there. But which version? Blasphemous. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Don't blaspheme at me, Jim. <laughs> Are any of the ones we've discussed tonight on there? Oh, one of them may well be on there. I would assume it's Rosemary's Baby, then. 
Bingo, yep. Rosemary's Baby is on there. Um, and I'm going to have to go with uh, my all-time favourite cult film, I guess, would be Midsummer. That's got to be on there, surely. Midsummer is not on the list. Oh, well, that's a terrible <laughs> oh, list then, isn't it? <laughs> Controversial. Oh. I, I, of course, I've said before. I think Midsummer is. Uh, I thought it was quite quite overrated, but yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not on the list. I, I'm actually generally quite surprised that it's not on there, though, because number ten only got six out of ten. Mm. Number ten, by the way, is the uh, the Lodge, which is from the creators of Good Night, Mommy. It's a decent film. Uh, it's been out in America for a long time, so you can legally watch it. And it's uh, yeah, it's a, re- it's a it's a decent film about a soon-to-be stepmom who's trying to bond with some kids. One of the kids is played by the main child from the movie It, and they go off to a small resort where we get snowed in and all hell breaks loose. Some really good revelations that goes on, even if a little bit predictable. So that's number ten. Number nine is one that we considered covering tonight, but didn't. That is Miss Sacrament. Finishing with 6.1 on IMDb. This is Ty West movie, which is, of course, very much based upon the Jonestown Massacre. Well worth watching. Number eight, you might have seen. This came out a couple of years ago. This is The Ritual. Didn't say that either. Uh, <laughs> that the one we've very spawned. It's the one about three dudes who are going to uh, yes, it's three yeah. guys, three guys who are uh, going off of the woods to honour yes. uh, a friend who died. And uh, I tell you what, something actually has got in common with Apostle is the set of it is wonderful. I've had a issue of praise Apostle for that, so mm, my bad. Yes, Apostle, yeah, Apostle the set was brilliant. Um, but yeah, with the ritual, it's uh, three friends who get lost in the woods trying to take a shortcut. And it builds up to a kind of cult towards the end of it. Uh, mm. I thought this was a really good film. And the bond between the three leads was so believable. Yeah, yeah, it was it was good. And, and uh, an interesting kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's an all-out horror film, but uh, yeah, it's, it's very good with how it ended. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, which is why I'm choosing my words. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. it's still relatively new. But yeah, it was pretty decent. Number seven is another relatively new film. This is the Nicolas Cage one, Mandy. Not seen that either. <laughs> Reve- Re- well, psychedelic <laughs> revenge flick. Yeah, you you seen sort of. <laughs> um, it's about hippie cult and stuff. Cult and stuff. I just didn't. I don't know. It never clicked. It never clicked to me as one that we could possibly have chosen for this episode. Um, number six. I think this film is really good. It is the Elizabeth Olsen film Martha Marcy May Marlene. A really good drama, or drama horror, about a young woman adjusting to life outside a cult. You know, she's been in one, she's out. I think of that as she is uh, like an unfunny version of the, uh, or a similarly unfunny version of the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And uh, you've got Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Really good drama and uh, quite disturbing at points. Number five is a film I've never seen. This is a documentary called The Vow. The Vow is all about the secret sex cult that existed with the self-help group 
N-X-I-V-M, which is said next e um. Oh, yeah, because it was that woman who, who was out of Smallville, innit, wasn't it? Yes, that's right, Alison Mack. Yeah, I remember. Well, I, do you know what? When we were just discussing then, I thought about, I wonder if anyone's made a, or if anyone's going to actually make a film based on that, because that would probably be interesting and relevant to know. So is that a documentary then, The Vow? Yep, it's by HBO, and uh, so I think it'll be available on Sky Atlantic, I, I assume. And uh, yeah, it's number five. It might be very, very good. Uh, number four. This is one we've discussed before. A film that is, of course, in no way based upon Scientology. That is The Master with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. Not seeing that. <laughs> You're getting a good list here. This is, this I'm taking I notes. Was... I'm taking notes. Believe me, these are on the list. <laughs> This one I thought was phenomenal. Really good central performances by both guys and great, rich characterization in it. And just, it, it's such a shame that Philip Seymour, that Philip Seymour Hoffman died as a, you know, a guy who was really just, his career, his career was arguably yet to peak. You know, he'd, he'd done some fantastic work and this is probably going to go down as his best performance. Hmm. Is, is, is Paul Thomas Anderson? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, um, the, I prefer the other Paul Andersons. Believe it or not. I like to think Paul Thomas Anderson singer going, you know what, I've done a lot, but I wish I could make a Mortal Kombat movie. <laughs> like my namesake. Well, Monster Hunter's coming out in a few weeks, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, shit, yeah, I forgot you did that. Uh it's number three. Uh, this is another documentary. It's really good, this one. Uh, Jesus Camp. Jesus Camp, it's uh, chron- chronicling a summer camp at an extremist evangelical Christian kids uh, summer camp. It's really disturbing at points, really disturbing to watch how much the kids get into this. There's a lot about this kind of uh, conservative wing of Christianity and some of the parts where like, you know, you see the manipulations that are going on, the the way that these kids are being raised, the way these kids are being propagated to, it's really uncomfortable viewing and strongly recommended. Now this brings us to number two and number one. We know the Wicker Man and Rosemary's Baby are both on this list. Which one do you guys reckon won Wicker it? Man. Yeah, I'll, Wicker Man. Yeah. I'll probably down. go with that. Just out of curiosity, before we, before we reveal what the winner is, would you guys say The Wicker Man is a better film than Rosemary's Baby? The two very different movies for me, but in terms of which one's my favourite, I'm going to go with Wicker Man. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time since I've watched The Wicker Man, and given I only watched Rosemary's Baby yesterday, I, <laughs> again, I couldn't really compare the two. Uh, so... My relationship with the two of them, I really, really like The Wicker Man. Um, you know, maybe it's a Scottish thing. I've been swigging iron brew during the course of this. <laughs> uh, where The Wicker Man really gains points is in the atmosphere department. It's the soundtrack, you know, the folk music there. It's the weird, dark humour that's running through it. Wicker Man is such a unique piece of work. That being said, I think of Rosemary's Baby there is potentially a more relatable plot going on in it and there's potentially a more difficult subject matter that's going on through it. For me, I prefer The Wicker Man to it, but I could possibly accept that Rosemary's Baby is maybe a better made film than The Wicker Man is. 
That being said, number two is the Wicker Man. So number one is Rosemary's Baby. Oh. With eight out of ten, Wicker Man has 7.5. It's according to the uh, people of IMDb.com. Oh, how, can, how can they both score them that higher? Higher! How <laughs> <laughs> can Wicker Man I mean, be given 7.5? Did, did you say, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's Bloody a... hell, they need the red feeling. 10 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is, with IMDb ratings, for nothing scores very high on IMDb, particularly not horror things. Horror films, when they come out, it's like IMDb goes 5.5, right? Or something along those lines. It's like Rotten Tomatoes, where horror films always get a hard deal. Um, I'd love to see a, a I mean, full, you know, a film that gets like 10 out of 10. I wonder if one of them exists. Do- I bet it won't, but... It- it doesn't surprise me that, that Rosemary's Baby has got 8 out of 10. It does actually surprise me in a way that Wicker Man was so well liked to end up on 7.5, which again for a horror film is really, really high. Um, I'm finding it was strange that Midsommar wasn't on there, mm. largely just because, you know, it's been it's been so successful. So in fact, I'm not even going to Google this of what Midsommar currently has on IMDb. Yeah, Midsommar should have been on there because its score is 7.1. And that list was compiled in twenty in twenty uh, twenty, so it should be third place there. Hmm. I mean, glad it's not in some ways, but at the same time, <laughs> it, yeah. and also to be fair, we could arguably say, well, if you're including Midsummer in that, you may as well include Hereditary in that, which is also a film about a cult. Yeah. And uh, Hereditary has an IMDb score of seven point three, so technically Hereditary would be uh, number three, and Midsummer would be number four. So yeah, Ari Aster, you've been done dirty here. <laughs> Can I just say as well, um, movie I saw at Grimfest that I know has been released over here anyway um, since uh, one br. Ooh yes, yeah, I I really enjoyed that one. I suppose the uh, another cult one that didn't come up there actually is the Invitation. No, I believe that's that's one I've not seen. But after speaking to you and Ross, I've not seen the film, but I believe there's a correlation between one br and that movie, or rather, some it's a bit similar in a way. Yeah, I'm not going to say where it's similar, but they, there's a definite similarity between the two. Both of those are really good watches. One BR really surprised me with how good it was. Like it was one of those films that I watched just because it's a horror film and it's available and people were talking about it, but I didn't really have any high hopes for it. And then, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought the gaslighting vibe was well done in it. The world building was really well done in it. The pacing, the twists, mm. solid. And there's also a movie I've seen, I think it's coming out shortly, um, I think that was at Grimfest as well, called The Deep Ones, and that's very much inspired by Lovecraft, but it's, it's got a bit of like comedy element to it as well, but it is meant to be more of a horror, um, and that's quite enjoyable, quite fun. Have you been watching uh, Lovecraft Country at all? I've not, no, but I was just on about that then. Um, would you say Get Out is a cult? I wouldn't qualify that as a cult one. Um, I mean, I, I could see why people would, but I, 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 no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call that a proper a proper cult film. I think the thing with Get Out is it's not rooted in some sort of a. It's I, rooted in, an, in a political ideology. It's essentially it's a film about uh, capitalism and exploitation with a sort of juxtaposition of slavery mm. uh, and. Uh, this kind of fetishization of, of black bodies in it. But at the same time, I wouldn't qualify it as a cult one, but one that just occurred to me is Martyrs, which I would qualify as a cult film. And Martyrs did not make that list either. Mm. Of course, I'm talking about the original Martyrs, where the remake is not as bad as the remake of Inside, but the remake is not worth watching. Jim, any films about cults that you think should be on there that aren't? 
Except for, of course, your uh, your favourite Midsummer. Um, not really. I'm struggling to think of any more, to be honest. No, I was uh, trying to think of a witty joke about crappy animated films that constantly get released that everyone seems to love for some reason, like Shrek. <laughs> Got to be in a cult to like that, it seems. <laughs> but uh, no, no. Um, uh, yeah, as we've discussed, there does seem to be a few emissions that are a bit baffling, but no, nothing to contribute that, I guess. Uh, one that I've not watched, but I know does have a cult element is uh, Lords of Chaos, which got very, very good reviews. I uh, also... Uh, I wasn't a fan of The Endless, but I thought The Endless is the sort of thing that, pro- that probably would have scored quite highly here. Mm. Uh, Red State as well. Did any of you guys see Red State? Kevin, Kevin Smith's horror, horror film about cults? No. No, I didn't. I find Kevin Smith a very mixed bag, so I guess I've got to be in the right mood for uh, one of his films. Red State's not too much like his sort of earlier work. Like it's It's got some really good performances in it. I find it a little bit too kind of bitty to quite work as a, as a full movie, but mm. the uh, central performances in that are phenomenal. Uh, very worth watching just for those. Children yeah, of the I'm Corn? Surprised. Oh my God. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Oh, Children of the Corn, yeah, yeah, Children of the Corn is a lot of fun. Uh, I can get behind that one. Well, you never know, maybe Sharks of the Corn will be on that list in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking here on Google for just trying to jog my memory. Society. Oh, shit, yeah, Society. That's that's, that's thinking about cults, I guess. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, I, I, I could go with that one. Lords of Salem. Yes, yeah, I took a moment, Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem. That, that I can see by Jim's face, he's like, fuck that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Lords of Salem. I thought that was probably Rob Zombie's strongest work. Uh, they mentioned here House of the Devil. It's been a while yep, since ta- I've seen that. Ty West's uh, old one, House of the Devil. I thought that one was, generally speaking, I thought the pacing was a little bit off. It was a bit. It reminded me quite a bit of Babysitter Wanted, which is more fun than House of the Devil. The House of the Devil, when it, once it gets going, it's really good. Blood on Satan's Claw. Oh, that, I've seen that a long time ago. A bit friggin' weird. And Charlie says, which is... Basically, Charles Manson. Yeah, we did uh, Helter Skelter was another one based on uh, Charles Manson, of course, named him after the Beatles track, which he was apparently inspired by. And this brings it all full circle, because, of course, the role that Charles Manson played in the life of Roman Polanski as well. I wish it was coming together in a, a less harrowing manner. Otherwise, this sounds like a strangely smug way of <laughs> <laughs> the show's got a bit of, a bit of consistency in the through line going through it. But yeah, yes, uh Everybody, that has been our episode about cults. Do listen in for lots of further podcasts coming up. You know, hope you've all enjoyed learning about Bigfoot. And we will be seeing you all again very soon. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Films.co.uk
Fight Back Audio.